Well, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and as always, I am joined by... Catherine! My sister, and we are here to talk about another Alex Proyas-directed film. Uh, last time, we talked about one of Proyas's greatest successes, arguably... Dark City, uh, a film so good that Roger Ebert gave it a commentary track, um, but didn't necessarily do as well as it could have, didn't find that purchase amongst the wide audience, but it's still considered uh, a modern cult classic. This film, from later in his career, doesn't necessarily occupy that same space, and that movie is Knowing, the 2009 thriller sci-fi thriller kind of hard to nail down is meant to be thrilling not sure it is um from 2009 starring nicholas cage and rose byrne uh, among others and we'll, we'll talk about them but this uh film is uh, part of a a sort of set of nicholas cage movies that we're going to discuss and uh again a follow-up to our discussion of proyas who at this point, this is about 10 years after Dark City that this was released. Uh, in between, he had really only done iRobot and Garage Days, uh, iRobot being the most sort of notable release of his 2000s output. But uh, Knowing is an interesting beast, so we're very much looking forward to talking about it with you. But before we do that, um, what have you been watching, Kate? Anything interesting? Um, This week... Not a whole lot. Uh, I finally... <clears throat> I don't know if this, this counts as good viewing, but I finally watched mm. uh, Shane Dawson's... This is late to the game, because I try to avoid this stuff. I finally watched Shane Dawson's uh, series that he did with Jeffree Star about uh, the makeup they designed together. Because um, mm. I watched most of Shane Dawson's other documentaries. Um, but just all the stuff surrounding makeup i don't really understand it so that was one that I, I wasn't interested in but given all the controversy and things that have happened i thought it might be time to finally give it a watch um and it was it's interesting it's it is interesting to see how documentary filmmaking has come along with the addition of, of platforms like youtube um because mm -hmm. it's it's a little bit influenced, a lot influenced by reality television, and then a lot influenced by that sort of quick, uh, like fast-paced editing style that you know got really popular with Vine and stuff like that. Um, right. So it's yeah, interesting it's to see. Beast. It's interesting to see how how that shifts, you know, the way that documentaries are made. And uh, it was a good, it was a good watch. Yeah. No, I, I bet. It is kind of interesting. Um, you know, as I was growing up, I, I had a period where I was very into documentaries. I'm, I'm not a huge documentary guy. I much prefer fiction uh, when I'm, I'm watching something. You know, some reality TV uh, I can get behind. Uh, there was, you know, for a couple of years there, I was like super into Deadliest Catch, you know, just oil operas and and you know trying to to sort of wrap my head around those things but those two are you know there's kind of a storytelling component the reality tv component that kind of mad me i guess but um it is remarkable that you know to watch a modern documentary and sort of the the ways that they've just amalgamated other pieces and processes and filmmaking and 
uh, into their their sort of DNA these days. But that sounds really cool. I'll have to check that one out. Um, I'm kind of the same. Didn't have a ton this week. We've continued our our sort of march through Steven Universe, which uh, as a family we're loving. I, I think that may be one of the finest animated shows I've ever seen. Tight, really, really well done storytelling, excellent character work, brilliant plot reveals, um, spaced intelligently throughout seasons. Uh, the first season is is uh, 50 plus episodes, like 56 episodes. You know, it's the 11 minute Cartoon Network format, so it's not that much of a time investment. But man, just a, a fantastic season of television by itself. The later seasons are shorter, so I'm kind of curious to see how they rework it because um, that 56 episodes was was basically packed with uh, with all kinds of, of action and, and great character work but uh, so we kind of watched the continue our watch through that and then uh, I revisited a film that may very probably very likely show up on this podcast at some point in the near future and that was the uh, the thing but uh, the remake from uh, 2012, I guess, with Mary Elizabeth Winstead and a host of uh, Swedish and Norwegian actors, uh, but a surprising number of Americans at the Norwegian base. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, you know, somebody's got to speak English, right? Um, but uh, I'd, I'd kind of had it on my my list to rewatch for a while. I, I own it on Blu-ray. I bought it on Blu-ray. Don't ask me why. Probably because I, I just... I love, yes, I'm a mad lad. Uh, I just, I love the thing in all of its forms. The original Carpenter is, uh, version is, is one of the finest horror films ever, but just a great movie in general. Really fun to rewatch. And anything that sort of touches on that universe, I, I still am interested in. I have, I'm curious about, and I, I want to engage with, but. And, and the overall beats of the film are fine. Like, you know, it's, it's overall story is okay. It's a lot of a retread, you know, we're talking from the soft reboot period in, in Hollywood, but man, the special effects in that movie are jacked. Like they just ruined them by uh, doing over the top CG. Just, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to, uh, to enjoy it when you, you know, at this point, everybody's seen the work done practically on set and then how good it looked and to have that replaced so late in the game with CG. Like it's just, it's, it's a monstrosity of a film and not in a good way. Uh, but in any case, uh, you know, I rewatched that and a couple of other, you know, potentials <laughs> if you want to call them that, but that's about it for me too. Not a ton. No, so I guess we can uh, jump in. Uh, have you ever watched Steven Universe? I, I, I um, talked about that. I've seen like things that people have shared on social media, but I've never watched it. I think you would enjoy it. It's it's a surprisingly surprisingly well done show. Um, I don't know. I, I don't want to say too much because I wouldn't want to taint your your opinion on it. But it's it's. In terms of, of representation, in terms of dealing with issues like gender, I don't think I've ever seen a show handle it quite hey, as well as Steven Universe. I have read a lot about the, the gems it's, and how 
how that works with um, who they are and what they are and, and sort of what they represent and like character traits and stuff. Um, so I am interested to watch it. I just, I have to like get in the right mindset for cartoons. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure why. Um, I guess I just fell out of watching them for so long that I don't know. Now I feel like I don't have any business being a fan of any sort of animated series anymore. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's it's certainly a different headspace to be in, but it, it's one that bridges that gap. It, sort of like a, it's a more refined and, and carefully constructed Adventure Time. Adventure Time kind of got there, uh, you know, as it went, but it sort of felt like it fumbled its way. I didn't watch that either. Um and <laughs> that's that's a harder recommend for me. I think Adventure Time has a lot of really cool things about it, especially late in the game once they've established the world and the characters and, and all the things that are going on. But this Steven Universe just hits, for me anyway, it hit immediately, right from the beginning. Like everything was falling into place. It made sense. Just really, really clever uh, nice. and very well done. So, Is it on well, something streaming? Um, we've been watching it on Hulu. So okay. it's it's all streaming on there, but I think Cartoon Network they cross they stream on a bunch of different places. I don't think Hulu's exclusive or anything like that. So I, I, well, I mean, I have eleven found. minutes to spare. I can watch a few episodes. Of I have no. Well, excuse. hopefully, <laughs> yeah, eleven minutes isn't that. Like I said, it's it's not a, a huge time investment to sort of get through it, and it it flows really well from sort of scene to scene. The thing that I really enjoyed, and I, you know, this isn't a Steven Universe podcast, but whatever. Um, <laughs> the the episodes themselves like the uh the lead-ins and the you know the intro screens where they do this, the episode titles and then the outro screens they they customize those depending on the content of the episode and what was going on sort of the emotional content you know sort of change colors change song choice there's just there, you pick up on a lot of these like really interesting patterns in the show, you know, as they kind of are identified almost internally, like oh, this is the kind of episode this is, and uh, there's just some some really cool and, and clever, clever things. Like I said, it's just a really really well done show. So uh, I'm I'd be curious to get your your read on it. Cool. But all right, let's uh, let's dive into knowing. Um, let's try to know more about knowing. Uh, so uh, consistent listeners of the podcast are aware of Alex Proyas. Again, we mentioned one of his films in the past, Dark City, which is an absolute hard recommend from us. Absolutely go check that one out. This one is probably not going to fall into that strong of a category, but it certainly bears some of the hallmark qualities of an Alex Proyas film. If you are unaware of knowing, uh, then uh, the synopsis is, is pretty catchy, actually. And a lot of the reviews that we're going we're gonna to go through at least acknowledge that the premise of this film is pretty solid. And if anything, one of the weaknesses of the movie is that it didn't execute on that premise as well as it could have. But so the basic setup uh, is that an MIT professor, played by Nicolas Cage, his son... Is, uh, and his school dig up a time capsule from 50 years prior with letters from children uh, meant to be handed out to the children of the future, and they were supposed to have pictures of what these children from the 1950s sort of thought the future would look like. You know, so it's supposed to be rocket ships and spacesuits and blah, blah, blah. Well, Nicolas Cage's son opens it up, and it is a page of handwritten numbers. 
and these handwritten numbers in this time capsule after a sort of strange sequence of events he identifies them as basically dates and locations for horrific events that have taken place in the 50 years since the time capsule was buried uh, including things like 9-11 but that there are three events yet to come right the list mentions three events that are for dates that haven't happened yet and Nicholas Cage, this professor of astrophysics, goes on a quest to try and understand how this happened and if it can be stopped, right? And uh, it's an interesting premise for a film, right? And, and supposedly, based on a lot of the reading I did, that premise is what sold it. Um, you know, before they even saw a full script, just the idea of person opens time capsule, time capsule contained, you know, list of horrific events that it's neat it's just it's a neat premise it's it, i think it plays to a lot of our movies like to play with these types of ideas uh, in fiction in general but it seems like film constantly wants to sort of play with the idea of prophecy of being able to see or glimpse the future and try to stop it try to change it try to do something about it and and this movie just leans hardcore into that and it's a great setup all right so if you are interested in that if you uh, would like to check that out without hearing our <laughs> full debrief on it go ahead and pause the podcast go find a copy of it i will say that it is streaming for free right now on imdb tv uh, so oh. if you down, I know, right? <laughs> if you if you download uh, the IMDb app, you can watch this entire movie with some brief. What ads. you mean you don't already have it? <laughs> uh, I mean, I know I, I do. All my movies. Uh, yeah, I was not aware that IMDb offered a, a film streaming service, but apparently they do, and knowing is on it. Uh, <clears throat> so this is uh, late September, twenty twenty. If, uh, if anybody finds this in the future and it's no longer there, I apologize. Uh, so Knowing, even with that great premise, unfortunately did not have a great reaction. Uh, so if we look at our Rotten Tomatoes score, the purveyor of all things film, uh, they have a 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. So firmly in the squished tomato category. The audience score isn't much better, about 42%. And that's with uh, 430,000 ratings, so a good number, as opposed to our film last week that had 11,000 uh, ratings. But <laughs> <laughs> this one had a decent number. But yes, it is um, not great, and uh, I think you'll see why once we sort of delve into them. But <clears throat> reactions aside, knowing uh, has a pretty interesting performance from Nick Cage. Most of the reviewers talked about him. Um, I, I guess it's fairly easy to forget, I mean, because we're 25 years on at this point. But Nicolas Cage, one of his earliest performances, uh, won him an Oscar. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, leaving Las Vegas, he he's an Oscar-winning actor. And basically during the 2000s and, you know, last week's film ghostwriter we saw a sort of slow and steady decline in nick cage performances and his films um he seemed willing to sort of take whatever work he could get 
projects that many people saw as being beneath an actor of his potential stature. And, and knowing for a lot of people represented a continued sort of step in that direction. And I don't know if that's true. He had a lot of tax true. problems, too, that he had to yes. deal with. Yes, that is, which, is part of the issue. Yeah, which, you know, that might be why he took roles like this. I am, right, and I'm a seemingly even fan. today he still has those issues. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm a big fan of Nicolas Cage. I, I appreciate, I, I don't know, like, I, I'm not one of those film viewers that hates... Movies that are are of a certain era, so you know those kind of '90s action films that that I came to identify with, like Nicolas Cage, like The Rock, Con Air, Face Off. Those those films are near and dear to my heart. Whether they're they're great films, whether they're these you know epic cinematic experiences or not. I do really love his performances in them. I, I love an actor that is willing to go all in with something. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of his roles, I, I feel like he goes all in. And like, let's not forget, he was also nominated for Adaptation in 2002, which is a fabulous movie. That's very true. It's that, yes. like, that is, that's Charlie Kaufman. That's, mm, ah, chef's kiss. Um, so I love him. But that said... This is not Nicolas Cage. This movie did not feel like Nicolas Cage to me. I think it has moments, but it is extremely restrained given right? what we've seen Nicolas wow. Cage do. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's very constrained and and I think it adds a different dimension to Cage's work in this film. Like I don't think he doesn't go, you know, sort of quote unquote full cage at any <laughs> point, but I think he still has one of the things I think Nicolas Cage does very well, this this MIT professor in this movie makes a startling revelation and has information that would, in even the best circumstances, sort of have the potential to drive someone in, insane, quite literally insane. And I think he does a pretty good job of playing a guy who is on the edge of that and about to teeter over, but never does. And I think that that, that actually is fairly challenging to do because he seems like he's right there and, and, you know, we'll get into it more, but I think cage is, is underrated in, in this movie. I don't think it's, it's what we would expect, but I think he still does a very good job. But a lot of that probably has to do with Proyas sort of pulling his performances back because Proyas is, performance generally is fairly understated right he doesn't typically go for big over the top emotion um and he may have been especially shy of it here um because i think uh, another article that i read with him somebody was saying oh you know you got some really interesting you know sequences out of uh, what we assume was not a great a huge budget and he specifically mentioned on several occasions um, huge budgets come with strings, and I don't want strings. Um, so I think that's a direct reference to iRobot and what happened <laughs> with that movie. And and I think he was anxious to sort of go back to the type of movie making that he really was interested in doing. And maybe that's tamping Cage down a little bit, because uh, apparently emotions ran very high on the iRobot set, and I think he was trying to avoid it. But in any case, let's uh, let's read some reviews. Let's see some reactions here. Uh, the other thing we need to remember is that this is 2009. 
this is pretty much right in the midst of M. Night Shyamalan's fall from cinematic and grace. We're going to have to talk about him a lot during this. Because this, I'm, I'm going to say in the reviews that I read, 60% of them mentioned M. Night Shyamalan in some form or fashion well, when I evaluating mean, this movie. I'm not going to lie. While, while uh, we were watching it, um, I turned to my husband and I said, this is like Unbreakable, except Samuel L. Jackson in this movie is played by God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's This is right after uh, The Happening. So like it had begun. <laughs> Right, like M. Night Shyamalan's you know, rapid fall oh. from cover of Time magazine, this is the next Hitchcock or whatever that he got right as Unbreakable was coming out, to Hollywood pariah, right? Like we're, we're right in the middle of that because this is the, the happening Lady in the Water, Last Airbender trifecta that, mm. that just ruined his, his career for a while. He's kind of worked his way back, kind of. Uh, all right, so the f uh, this is from Linda Barnard, the Toronto Star. The frustrating thing about knowing is the story is worthy, but director Proyas tries to cram too much in, as if it as if the tricks and effects wizardry are all that really counts. They aren't. Um, so this is a, a fairly consistent complaint from what I saw: is that the movie felt overstuffed. Just too many ideas, too much going on. And as a result, nothing really seems to ever sort of solidify. And this is, I'm going to go ahead and say that this movie breaks down into something that I think was also really common in the mid-2000s, which is the religion versus science, man of God, man of faith dichotomy. Um, those of you who remember Lost, Right, you remember Jack, man of science, Locke, man of faith. Remember that little that little little show that was popular <laughs> there for a bit, uh, the one that ended so badly that everybody tried to pretend that it never happened, including me. That did break um, my heart. I'm I've, I'm sorry. Um, I've I've watched the I've I've watched the finale a couple of times since the show ended. And I've accepted the fact that basically they decided to end the show with character and emotional clarity as opposed to plot clarity, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I still think they could have done a better job of handling both. But Lost was a show that at its core, and, and Damon Lindelof continues to wrestle with this idea, as I think this movie is trying to, with how can you be a person who believes in, in science, reason, progress, yet also have some sense of the unknown and, and the things that one must have faith about. And and Hollywood was really obsessed with those ideas. I think a lot of it had to do with Bush-era politics and, and sort of a, a great many clashes between those those two things that were going on at the time and Hollywood sort of putting its its foot down in a couple of different areas. This movie is not quite as clear on its stance, but I think it, it muddles the waters quite a bit between these, these ideas and doesn't really navigate that super well. And this, I think that's what this review is picking up on. 
but you know, it's even under the best of circumstances, these are not simple themes to deal with. Um, but the special effects wizardry was another one people noted. This movie was pretty much universally lauded for its special effects, and it's really just in a couple of key spots. But man, there's spots, and uh, that's that's one thing we'll certainly talk about here in a bit. Um, from Kamal Al Solai in the Globe and Mail, um, it's breathlessness and permanent state of confusion make you long for the assured touch. Of M. Night Shyamalan, <laughs> which I thought was, uh, again, that's just a Those nice one to grab. Words in 2009. For, yeah, in 2009, that's a, that's a statement that I'm not sure even in 2009 held up. Um, but I will say that I think the movie that was, was drawing most close to this was Signs, which was probably Shyamalan's last truly lauded film. Yeah. Like, everybody loved Signs. Uh, I, don't. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, I, I certainly don't hate it. It's got moments that I think are very good. But Signs had a very clear thematic dealing with this very same idea, right? Mel Gibson's character very famously in Signs is an Episcopalian minister, I think, whose wife has died, similar to Nick Cage's character in this film, and, and he has rejected his faith. But by the end of the film, by having this experience with an extraterrestrial organization or organism um he has actually come back to his faith he's he's resumed his his belief after having a series a series of experiences that would normally you think shake someone's belief but it, it has the opposite effect but Shyamalan kept a very there was a very simple through line in that film it was very uncomplicated and I think people are sort of saying why can't we have that with knowing? And I don't think knowing wants to be that uncomplicated about it, for one. But yeah. uh, but again, just one of many, many, many M. Night Shyamalan references in pretty much all of the uh, reviews for this movie. Um, A.O. Scott in the New York Times, guy I read a lot. Uh, the draggy, lurching two hours of knowing will make you long for the end of the world even as you worry that there will not be time for all of your questions to be answered. Um, this one I pulled for, for two reasons. One, a lot of people felt that the movie was too long, that it, it lurched from plot point to plot point rather than sort of seamlessly flowing. And, and I had that experience too. Uh, you know, there's a fairly major reveal around the midpoint of the film. There's about 40 minutes left, I guess. And, and I was legitimately shocked. I had to pause it to run to do something. And I looked at the runtime that was left and I was like, seriously? Wow. Like, I had forgotten that we, we have like 45 minutes left in this movie. And they just revealed that. Holy cow. Uh, that seems like a bad idea. I, and like, again, we'll, we'll talk about it. But uh, the other part is, is that this movie ends and doesn't necessarily explain everything super well as i'm sure we will discuss and, and so a lot of people had those issues um even one of the positive reviews which I, I did pull said that there were questions that you could ask at the end but um depends how willing you are to sort of let those go i suppose uh keith phipps from the av club proyas remains a skilled director of mood and spectacle but a striking look and a handful of remarkable set pieces look out for that plane, can't elevate <laughs> what's ultimately a silly movie with a queasy subtext. 
And that queasy subtext is this sort of faith versus science idea. Uh, Phipps also was reacting to that. And uh, finally, I pulled a, a positive review from our, our good friend, Roger Ebert, uh, because Roger Ebert, who is the biggest Proyas fan, uh, actually felt that this was, was pretty, pretty great. Uh, he enjoyed knowing a lot. Uh, and he said, knowing is among the best science fiction films I've seen. Awesome. Frightening, suspenseful, intelligent, and when it needs to be, rather awesome. Um, his full review, he, he talks a lot about sort of what science fiction should do, the questions it should ask. Um, he makes some close encounters of the third kind references, uh, which there are certainly some, some crossover here that you could, you could make. But um, he enjoyed this immensely. Um, and... Um, and I, I think I, I can see the I can see where he's coming from. I don't know if it's necessarily um, indicative of, of sort of like how just anybody would take the film. I think somebody that's seen as many movies as Roger Ebert has might be able to navigate this and sort of see sort of be able to fill in some of the gaps that the movie has with with previous film knowledge much like with dark city because dark city was accused of much the same thing right it's like piecemealing from so many other films of its ilk that without that film knowledge to sort of go like oh i know where that's from or oh i know what this is referencing you're not necessarily going to see all those pieces but this one maybe that could have a similar effect that's true it's hard to say i mean We've said it many times. I mean, Roger Ebert's my, my favorite film critic, and I don't always agree with him. Um, but, no, no. But I, if you have seen that many movies, if you have, if you have the career that he's had, and he really was a big fan of Alex Proyas. Yeah, no, I think he just was down with Proyas's vibe. I really do. Um, that's interesting, though. Like that that surprises me. I didn't realize he liked it that much. Yeah, four out of four. Wow said it was great so <clears throat> so the big problems just in a nutshell uh many people called it a sort of Shyamalan light blockbuster uh and this this was a bit of a blockbuster uh it's low budget helped it be a pretty decent success it was the number one movie in america for at least one week uh, i think its only competition was the uh early rock vehicle uh, Escape from Witch Mountain remake. March is a, a rough month for film releases in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I said, you're not going to find the, the biggest movies ever, but uh, it, it was able to take the top spot. Uh, ended up with about two, a little over $200 million worldwide on a $50 million budget. So, not bad. Like I said, it didn't, it didn't you know, burn up the charts, but it didn't lose either. Um, so, a Shyamalan-like blockbuster, which, again... Looking back from 2020 is just hilarious that anybody would want to be a Shyamalan-style blockbuster. But they certainly were popular at the time. Shyamalan did a great deal to reintroduce the thriller to modern box offices. That was a, a sort of... I'm not going to say a dead genre. Thrillers don't go away. It's such a large category, and so many films sort of fit into it in one way or another. But it's he was one a of the renaissance. Yeah, I mean, this it's... The Sixth Sense really got people going when it comes to... It's a to, great movie. 
And it I is, watched yes. it not that long ago. I think it was a few months ago. And wow. I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's so remarkably good. well executed. Um, and again, I, I, I think, you know, there's a reason why Shyamalan got so much attention is because, you know, his first couple of movies were pretty great. Um, and then I don't know if it went to his head or if he just, you know, stopped having compelling projects in mind to twist. work for, but yeah, uh, it's, it's a hard box to get stuck in, I guess. Uh, so people, uh, again, uh, sort of a, a draggy plot, like it sort of just meanders along, doesn't really have a drive to it. Uh, I would say once the, once the disasters begin. I think that is a problem because the movie is just trying to kind of, kind of get us from one to the other and it's not doing a very good job of that. Uh, many people said that the ending was just absolutely preposterous and they were unwilling to accept it and believe that that was possible. Uh, which, okay, sure. I mean, it's certainly a leap, no doubt. Uh, many people cited just a clunky handling of what could be a really compelling premise. Which again, fair. Um, and, uh, a lot of people also brought up that, you know, the two thousands was the, and even the couple years after this, it was the, the explosion of the disaster genre yeah. again. I mean, right? like 2012 wasn't long after. after exactly. This, and that Every, was, a movie and that that was already, yeah. And that was already starting at this time that, yeah. that panic was already beginning. Um, and, uh, it, and, you know, we, all the Michael Bay block, but, you know, Deep Impact and Armageddon. I mean, we just had a host of, of these kinds of, like, giant disaster, avert the end of the world sort of movies uh, coming out during this, like, 15-year period. And knowing certainly, you know, falls into that category. So, um, I guess as we begin our, uh, I guess we can't really call them summaries because we're just kind of going through the whole thing. So, it's really more of, like, a briefing, I guess, like a... Uh, film brief i don't know what we're going to call it but kind of kind of makes sense but uh so anything else you want to bring up before we we launch into it and see what's uh see what we can see um i don't think so i think i'm ready you ready all right let's do this so knowing uh, i will say I, I i always like alex preuss's credit sequences they're not over the top by any stretch, but they're always kind of nice and subtly done uh, with sort of a, a cool thematic element. Obviously, with Dark City, they had the spirals. Crow has its, you know, sort of these these dark overtones. Um, you know, they, they all have like some interesting sort of eye-catching quality about them. And knowing is no different. Uh, basically, we have a bunch of this one shifting has some font numbers. Yes, there I are some very, <laughs> there are some interesting font choices. Um, it, it all looks pretty much like Futura, but but then the font for knowing is not in Futura or anything that looks like it in Futura. It's, yeah, it's it's bothering me. Yeah, like you can tell that the uh, the the title or or the uh, the treatment for knowing had been determined before the credit sequence was designed <laughs> and uh, somebody decided that instead of making it all hang together they wanted you know knowing's specific font choices that had been you know determined for the poster to be in the credits 
But uh, so there's a bunch of random sort of numbers. I mean, this film is establishing very quickly that, you know, these kind of outlays of numbers are going to be important. Uh, it's set sort of in space. And then we cut to a young girl, you know, sort of staring out into, you know, by the nature of the Kuleshov effect, we're, we're led to believe that the girl is sort of staring up into space, which is impossible. But she's she's certainly looking up into the sky at the, the sort of afternoon sun. And, uh, you know, her teacher comes out to beckon them inside and, and then we're told that it's 1959 in Massachusetts, which uh, it is definitely not Massachusetts. This is 100% Australia. I don't know what it is about the architecture in Australia, but there's nothing about that architecture that looks like an American school in 1959. <laughs> um, and that's fine. Uh, Proyas prefers to work in Australia. It's his home country. Uh, most of his films have been shot there. And uh, we can certainly see the, the remnants of that here. You'll, you'll see a few Australian actors doing their darndest to do an American accent. And, and, and they're okay. Uh, but uh, not in all cases. So the setup here is, is fairly simple. Uh, this young girl is participating along with her classmates in a time capsule project. They've been chosen by their school, which is newly opened, so they want to commemorate the occasion by creating a time capsule for the future children who will attend that school. And, uh, you know, it's it's pretty standard script stuff, you know, like the, the, the teacher goes like, oh, we're going to fill out a time capsule, and the kid raises his hand, he's like, what's a time capsule? <laughs> just, just in case, as you as an audience don't know what a time capsule is, we'll explain it to you. And uh, then they're told to basically just like draw pictures, right? Like, oh, go draw a picture of, you know, what the future is going to be. But the one little girl, the one that was staring off into the weird girl, the weird girl. But um, are we to believe that it was her idea to draw the pictures for the future? Is that what we're told? Was that the contest? I'm guessing it was. Um But uh, they said that they had pitched ideas and the principal had picked them and that it was... Uh, Lucinda, who had had won that contest, and then she tells them to draw their pictures. So I'm I'm guessing that it was her idea to draw the pictures. I, I don't know. That's one thing that was yeah. wasn't really super clear is what exactly the contest was in the first place. It seemed more just like a way to an excuse so that we know this girl's name, like we know who she is, she, so she can get called out. Um, but well, instead like, of drawing, you just put her name on the desk or something. Just... Right, and she still calls her Lucinda when she comes over to take her paper away. So I don't know, you know, what difference it makes. But um, in any case, the the little girl, instead of drawing a picture, she writes down a bunch of numbers, yeah. uh, furiously, crazily. You know, she's like writing these numbers down as fast as she can. She's the weird girl. Because she's the weird girl. Obviously, she's pale. Her, she's got bags under her eyes. You know, obviously, she's, she's got those terrible girl. freckles. The long, dark hair. What? Long, dark hair with freckles. That's right. Um, and then we very quickly transition to the, the you know, placement of the time capsule. Again, this does not look like 1950s America at all, but what have you. And again, the little weird girl is standing off by herself with her yellow balloon, watching the event, unable to engage, looking very sad, looking very worried. And they place the time capsule down into its, its container. Uh, and then we get, you know, Proyas, we, we talked a little bit last week with Ghost Rider that, you know, Mark Stephen Johnson really didn't know how to shoot a, a terrifying scene. Like, he doesn't know how to make something scary. 
um, he, he knows the the basics of it, right? Like, oh, you need darkness, you need somebody, you know, frame left, looking frame right, you need, you need uh, sharp sound. But it, he didn't really know how to create a sequence that is, is actually frightening. Uh, Proyas does not have that problem at all. Um, and I'll go ahead and say that in the hands of a less capable director, this this movie would be a a disaster. We probably of wouldn't epic talk proportions. About it. No, I, I don't know if it would have been made. Uh, this movie actually was acquired through a turnaround deal. Um, and turnarounds, dear listeners, in Hollywood are film projects that have reached production phase, or at least pre-production phase. The studio has spent money on it, but then decides to discontinue its production, claim it as a loss on their taxes, and then sell it to another studio to try and reclaim the loss. Um, so this was a project that had been in development for a bit, and basically nobody had figured out how to do it, or at least do it successfully. And a few other directors had been attached. I, I don't remember all the names at this point, but ultimately it fell in Proyas's lap. He decided to take it on as a project. He was in the middle of a, a deal with that movie studio at the time, so it was probably just floating around, and they said, hey, you could work on this. And so he took it and redid the script and, and uh, you know, sort of made it his next project. But it was a film that you know, was basically bought cheaply and made cheaply. So you know, it, it could have gone to somebody else, but Proyas is the one who sort of wound up in the director's chair. But so uh, we get this really great scene. Obviously, the, the little girl disappears. We see her balloon float up into the sky. The little girl disappears. Every, and then we see everybody searching for her and trying to find her. And they do. The teacher goes down into the basement. She hears some, some sounds, some scratching sounds, opens up a closet door, and um, finds the little girl scratching numbers into the back of the door. And her nails have been uh, ripped off, right? She's... She's bleeding from the fingernails. You know, again, sort of the weird girl is compelled to write the numbers. And she didn't get to finish them on the paper, so she's got to write them down somewhere. And and that's really the opening of the film. Uh, and it's, man, it's just nicely executed. Uh, really good. <laughs> I, I love a good match cut. You know, I love it. And uh, we transition from the teacher's flashlight, you know, where she's like got a trained on little girl to the sun up in space looking down on Earth, which is kind of cool. And then we get like the rest of the title sequence, because that's really like all just been in the middle of the title sequence. The rest of the title sequence is almost like a powers of 10 kind of thing. Uh, if you've ever seen that, that educational film. And, uh, you know, we, we basically zoom down to the, the home of, of Nick Cage's character, the, the MIT astrophysics professor, which, uh, sure, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I buy that. Um, I guess we could talk a little bit just briefly about Marco Beltrami's score here. Uh, so I love a good Beltrami score. He's done a lot of movies and projects that I, I like. Um, here he seems to be doing a lot of a lot of Bernard Herman channeling, right? A lot of this feels kind of like Vertigo, uh, you know, like like mid like you know mid career Hitchcock 
stuff, which, you know, Herman did a lot of those scores, North by Northwest and Psycho and, and whatever, but it's, it's very atmospheric. Uh, it's, it's orchestral, but not traditionally orchestral in a lot of ways. And then there are a couple of like specific classical music, uh, choices that they make, which are kind of cool. But in general, I think, you know, it's, it's a solid score. It's, it's good. It's, it's not afraid to be silent either, which I think is, is nice. Uh, again, that's one thing I like about Proyas is he's not constantly filling uh, the soundscape. Everything gets a chance to breathe occasionally, which is, is kind of nice. That's true. Um, but so we come down on Nicolas Cage. <laughs> they have to tell us it's the present day so we don't get confused. All the boys Thank and you. girls love present day. They do. It's, it's a good day. <laughs> um, and uh, so Nicolas Cage is, is stargazing with uh, his son. And very quickly, uh, it, I think we can kind of tell that something's a little off, but uh, go ahead. What were you I, don't, I didn't really understand the purpose of, of this scene because it just the, him in the backyard and it doesn't seem to go anywhere or have any purpose. And then the... Like, why are they outside making dinner? And then the boy is like, I don't even like hot dogs. I don't get it. I just don't, I'm confused. <laughs> I felt like it was such a strange place to begin. Um, it is. Uh, it, was, it was a very rocky introduction to these characters that we're going to spend the entire movie with. <laughs> um... There's a couple of key pieces of, you know, this is like my, my second or third time through this movie, but there's a couple of interesting pieces of information. I think in some ways we might be supposed to feel, or, or he may want us to feel a little bit off kilter. You know, we don't know who these characters are yet. We get, you know, a more traditional introduction would probably be what we get next, which is him, uh, Nicolas Cage's character in the classroom, talking about one of these subjects. But one thing I've noticed about Proyas in terms of his storytelling is he likes these protagonists that are thrown into extraordinary circumstances, right? All the way back to the crow. Yeah. Um, but he chooses to always have these protagonists in extraordinary circumstances grounded by a very basic very human family issue that they are dealing with. Uh, in The Crow, it's still a bit extreme because it's the loss of Shelley. It's it's her death and, and horrific murder that drives Eric Draven. In Dark City, it's this, you know, pending divorce, domestic squabble with Jennifer Connelly. In iRobot, it's the uh, death of his daughter. And in this one, it is the you know, loss of Nicholas Cage's, you know, loss of his wife. I think that's really what these scenes are about is showing that there is no mother in this relationship, which shouldn't be strange, but I think a lot of film goers would look at this and say like, well, where's the mom and why, why isn't there a mom here? Um, Given why that people doesn't still the regularly know? come at Disney for their, their lack of mothers. Yeah. That's yeah. You know, and, and Nicholas Cage is, is drinking. He's he's unaware of his son's you know choices. He seems generally bewildered. Um, 
I think we're meant to be thrown off here. Um, another thing I saw in a couple of reviews was like, what is up with his house? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, what is going on with the house? Uh, you know, Proyas loves texture, right? He He's not really one to to populate his screen with, with basic colors, shapes, textures. He, he likes depth and Nicholas Cage's house in this film is, is some kind of work in progress. Uh, as the story unspools, I think we're supposed to realize that he and his wife had bought it as kind of a fixer upper project. I think that also justifies why he has a truck, uh, which is something <laughs> that no one in, well, not no one, but it's an odd vehicle, vehicular choice for an MIT professor in Boston to own a big Ford F-150. Um, but I, I think it's it's supposed to be indicative that that Cage and, and, and his wife and, and their child were were spooling up for a very sort of you know domestic existence, and it died quite literally. And and I think the the house. I, one thing I do believe about Alex Proyas is that he is a director who thinks in symbols and layers his film with really very obvious symbols to support his characters and i, I think agree. The dis- and that's sometimes at the cost yeah. of of more traditional storytelling right i think he's i think he's a director that much of the time trusts that his audience will just sort of like get it without having to explain it but that doesn't always work but in this one i think it's the the disarray of the house is the dis is the internal disarray of of nicholas cage's character like he's he's literally just sort of like flailing around like i'm I'm unfinished I'm, i i don't know what i'm doing and i think we're supposed to sort of get that impression but it is an odd place to bring us into the scene it establishes the the dad and the kid they're kind of on the outs with each other they they're they're not really a tight unit at this point but beyond that there's not much that we get and then we tr- we we jump almost immediately after he sits and drinks and listens to Beethoven uh, to a, a much more traditional introduction scene, which is him in the classroom teaching. And of course, the topic is determinism versus random chaos. I love right? how, how movie school is always appropriately timed and, mm-hmm. and really relevant. <laughs> yeah. Cla- I mean... <laughs> Uh, I remember these these opening scenes from uh, Breaking Bad as well. Like, it's the exact same thing, right? I need to establish an idea that we're going to exploit very readily in the near future. A classroom full of willing and unwilling students listening to someone talk about these ideas is the best way to do that. And that's exactly what we get here, right? Then this we, is a film. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no. That, I I just wanted to, to say that they were also excited to learn that Oh, well, it was yeah. Just, it's just a very awkward little scene. <laughs> it's, it's MIT, and one of the Hemsworth brothers is there. We're it's all just the happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, just side note, this is the first uh, film appearance of Liam Hemsworth, the, a lesser Hemsworth, but The one but that's still, not for. No, no, the one that married Miley Cyrus right, for a while. Right, right, right. right. Uh, and man, he has got some frosted tips. They are nicely frosted. Uh, but he, too, gets to engage in the discussion of 
a deterministic world, a teleological viewpoint of the universe where the function of a thing is seen as an intended design based on, on what we do with it. And, and they are, are trying to, to understand whether or not the world is um, determined, right? What is free will, right? We get a, a lot of ideas thrown at us very quickly and not None very None of those well, things ever came up in any of my science classes, just to let you know. <laughs> no, it's MIT, though, right? <laughs> we talked See. about the powerhouse of the cell, and that was it. <laughs> <laughs> are you, wait, are we talking about the mitochondria? Oh, we are. Fantastic. We are. Great. I didn't know if you knew about the very powerhouse good. of the cell. <laughs> the fundament of American science. My goodness. Um, so these examples that he's throwing out, like the, the distance of the earth to the sun, um, you know, the fact that, that that worked out, you know, does that mean that there was a grand design and a purpose, that kind of stuff? It's, it's, it's very much, this is actually content for a philosophy class, not an astrology, not an astronomy yeah. class. But if, um, if you showed a philosophy for professor, it wouldn't be weird that he was like drinking on a Tuesday night in his no, backyard of a gothic mansion. <laughs> but the scene finally culminates with what we're supposed to take as the worldview of, of Nicolas Cage's character, which is that everything is chaos. There is no meaning. There is no purpose. It's just, ugh. <clears throat> and of course, this is a lead in to being told very quickly after this that uh, Nicolas Cage's wife has died suddenly in the recent past and that he has been left, you know, sort of emotionally and physically bewildered by this, this experience. And, uh, and you can see it. I mean, uh, one of the things I like about Cage in this is that he's given a lot of space to do work with his face. Uh, which I, I think, you know, there's nothing about Nicolas Cage that hasn't been analyzed to the nth degree on the internet at this point. So I don't want to sound like I'm doing something extreme, but most of the time when talking about a Nick Cage performance, people are, are a lot of times talking, at least in my experience, with gesticulations mm -hmm. and his voice, right? The, the nature of his voice. But Nicolas Cage when given the space to do so, actually is one of the most expressive actors of his generation in terms of his face. Um, he has very specific things that he does. I don't want to make it sound like he, he doesn't have the sort of go-tos that he, he constantly draws from. But, well, in the scene when he's walking with uh, Ben Mendelsohn, again, this was the first time I'd ever seen Ben Mendelsohn in anything, and now he's everywhere. Um, who is supposed to be, he's what, a, uh, is he a cosmology, not cosmology, that's not, no, that's wrong. Um, basically another professor at MIT that is his friend. When they're walking together kind of through the quad, how many, how many actors have you seen in a movie who will puff their cheeks out? Right, where they'll like literally do the thing. I don't see that a lot because it's not a flattering facial expression on most people, but Nicolas Cage is, he'll do that as part of his performance. I'm not saying that other actors won't, people do, but it's, it's just not a common, you know, it's not a common reaction that you see. And I think that he gets the chance with Proyas at the helm 
to do a lot of work with his expressions in this movie. Um, and I think it's pretty good. Like, I, I like what he's doing with it. It's still a bit over the top, probably. But I, I think Cage is is actually getting a space here to do some cool stuff uh, when he gets the chance. But, um, but in any case, he's he's walking along and, and he remembers that he's late for this event at his kid's school. Uh, wasn't and Mendelssohn's trying to like set him up on a date, right? Mendelssohn's character is the worst. Like he he doesn't have a lot to do. Here. Terrible. Like he's a terrible person. Whenever he opens his mouth, he's saying something awful. <laughs> like I just from the minute that character showed up, I was like, and I'm done with you. Um, yeah. I I don't know. Somehow I edited him out, uh, and I didn't even remember an annoying best friend character. Um, but when I watched it this time, I was like, man, he is really the worst. Yeah, I, he seemed, his only real function in the story is to to question everything that Nicolas Cage brings to the table. Yeah. Because, um, again, ostensibly, Cage is an astrophysicist, right? So this is a, this is a hard science, um, a very specific and exacting science um, with a lot of, I mean, there's there's room, obviously, astrophysics is a very large but um, he he generally is is just pushing back against things that Nicolas Cage is proposing. He wants to see him move on. So we get the idea that his wife's death it's been a while, right? It's it's not it's not a recent thing, and and he's hoping that he can you know sort of move on from it in the near future. Um, but yeah, he he just sort of enters and exits the film at odd times. Uh, and he doesn't really play a role beyond guy at school that I talk to when I'm at school, yeah. uh, which, you know, we could have certainly seen him in some other venues. Um, you know, I would have liked to see him like come over to the house a few times, which he, I think he made once, but um, regardless, you know, Nicholas Cage just ditches him, you know, and says, Hey, we'll, we'll deal with this later. Um, so again, I think we're, we're very clearly supposed to understand that Nicholas Cage is trying and kind of failing at being a good dad, right? He's he's doing his best, but he's he's not good at it. He has not generally had to be good at it in the past, perhaps, and now he is, and he's trying, but not the best. So he arrives at the school for this uh, time capsule opening ceremony, and they're singing "This Little Light of Mine," which I don't understand that. Why that again, the I. I, I cannot imagine that song being sung at a school function in the United States. There are States. so many songs that involve references to the sun and light and all the things that this movie wants to talk about, but it picked that one. Yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, that's that's really the thing is at this point we have had a match cut to the sun. We've had little girls staring at the sun. We've had um, a song about this little light of mine, Gonna Let It Shine. You know, Nick Cage is an astrophysics professor who was using, you know, information about the sun to explain a concept. There's a lot of stuff about the sun. The, 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 caps the, the time capsule itself is inside of a star, right? Like the, the holder for it is a star. So we're, we're getting lots and lots of sun imagery. Wah, wah, wah. That's, you know, 
stuff's going to happen. So Nicholas Cage shows up. His son still is like, you were late. And he's like, I got to see a thing. It's okay. And then they distribute all of these things. And uh, we're introduced to the fact that the teacher who was alive back then is still alive. And she's come <laughs> back for the ceremony. And she somehow it's, has not changed her hairstyle. Yeah. Her clothing. Everything is the same. Uh, she's been aging in place. And she uh, hands out all of these little messages. And of course, Nicholas Cage's son gets... The written message from Lucinda, the weird girl. The moment he touches it, really, um, his hearing aid begins going wrong. Um, and I guess later we're told that he's not deaf, but he yeah, has the tendency to... And he has the tendency to jumble sounds. Um, so when he hears things, they don't come in clearly, implying he's got some kind of... Uh, Information processing disability. Well, I mean, that happens if you're hard of hearing and you rely on reading lips. If you suddenly can't do it, I mean, the sounds do become jumbled because you can right. only hear at certain frequencies. Right. And he, but he makes very clear that he's not deaf, right? Like um, he has that conversation later with, with Rose Byrne where he says, you know, but he's not deaf. He needs a hearing aid to help, but, you know, he doesn't have deafness in the traditional sense. So... I think this is an undeveloped idea, but I think it's sort of similar to other ideas in films that, that try to play with this, that the boy is, is unique. He's special, right? There's something about his development that makes him unique that maybe has something going on. I don't know. Um, but regardless, the, the boy doesn't want to wear his hearing aid because it seems to be messing up. He keeps hearing things, um, which, you know, the movie opens with whispers, and a common, you know, sort of experience throughout it is that people who have made contact with this force, whatever it is, they, they hear these whispers. And the boys apparently started to do the same since he touched this letter. Uh, we get another kind of awkward sun cage scene where the son's trying to ask him if he can go out on a friend, over to a friend's house for the, the weekend. And, and Cage seems resistant to the idea, especially when there's like risk involved, like we're going to go out on a boat or something. And uh, then he finds the letter and that's what kind of kicks everything off. Um, so initially his, his beef is really just that the kid took the letter and he's like, the kid, the school will want this. You shouldn't have this. Um, but he kind of sets it off to the side, setting up where we're headed. Kid goes to bed in the Gothic mansion. <laughs> kid <laughs> thinks crazy. Kid lives in like the attic. There's the round window. Like it's, it's such a movie set, you know, house. It's, it's kind of crazy. And like, Hey, where is this house in Boston? Like where in the world would this house exist? I have no idea. Uh, and then we finally get confirmation about the mom because when he goes up to check on the kid before bed, he's watching old home movies uh, with the mom and uh, you know, still very sad about the entire thing. But then things really kick off because uh, Nicolas Cage goes back down for a little more uh, weekday drinking, uh, this time with some, some scotch, I think. And he spills some on the letter and, and winds up looking at it. And the, the, the ring from the spill isolates a particular set of numbers. And he kind of becomes fascinated. Again, you know, we're, 
the movie hasn't done a very good job of establishing this, but Nick Cage is supposed to be, you know, a, a scientist. He's a mathematician, right? And so he picks up these numbers very quickly and realizes that it is a date. Um, really quickly. Really quickly. It's it very happens fast. suspiciously quickly. <laughs> now, granted, it is a significant date. So it is. maybe it, is. it would jump out. But it's it's nine eleven, right? And the the numbers have specifically the dates nine eleven uh, two thousand one, and then as he comes to find out eventually, the specific number of people uh, who died, right? It, it has that specific tally uh, two thousand nine hundred and ninety six, and so he. Uh, you know, goes out, verifies this. We get a lot of Googling, right? Uh, which I think it's called iGoogle. I think it's what the... <laughs> I think it's what the... Uh, they doctored the logo to look like. But here we get sort of our first little taste of, of a cage freakout. Because um, he's sort of yelling at the computer. Like, what is this? What does this mean? Super uh, subtle, though. Not like you're... Not a... It's not like a not the bees moment. No, 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 nothing to that. Uh, I never that really level get here. a not the bees moment in this movie. No, no, probably uh, for I, the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could see maybe at the end you could get away with it, but it's—I don't know if it would fit. It would be interesting, but I think we're, he's supposed to be a bit drunk as well because he's kind of slurring his words a little bit. He's moving kind of slow. But still, he has enough focus to you know write all the letters down and start isolating things out. It's like why does he write all the numbers patterns? down? Well, because we needed the visual of, of <coughs> the patterns of the numbers, I guess. Do we? But because ah. <laughs> well, when he shows it to Ben Mendelsohn later, <laughs> that's you know Ben Mendelsohn has to be able to look at it and be like, well, what about all these numbers, idiot? What do, what do these mean? Um. But it, this is, honestly, a scene like this is one of the things that Proyas is really good at. A lot of very quick, very rapid close-up shots, conveying information, flipping back and forth, inserted with, you know, wider shots to establish space. You know, this is something that, that you know, Proyas kind of always does in his movies when it's his take on a, a, on a rapid montage. Um you know, uh, Dark City has a similar one as uh, Bumstead is piecing the crime together, and uh, you know there's lots of flashes as, as uh, Murdoch is figuring things out. But really, it's about sort of ratcheting up tension, right? As, as Nicolas Cage realizes what he's discovered, right? This sort of strange historical record of horrific events throughout the last 50 years he becomes shocked and and then you know again he's sort of a crappy dad the next morning he doesn't wake up in time to take his kid to school uh you know a lot of that kind of thing but he's obviously shaken by what he's discovered or what he believes he's discovered at this point he doesn't have any hard evidence to support this but of course he goes to school friend ben mendelson and says, you know, shows him, it's like, hey, look at what I've discovered, look at what I've found. And and Ben Mendelssohn just like shits all over it immediately, like with no hesitation. Um and and I think this is again, this is the movie sort of 
inarticulately wrestling with science, faith, science, faith. <clears throat> and, and, you know, Nicolas Cage has already started the, the conversion. He just wants to understand, which I think is, is played well here. We do get a couple little freak out moments in the Mendelssohn scene where he's like, but you don't understand, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff. But, you know, again, the movie doesn't seem to be able to, to plant its flag in any one area yet. And the most, you know, dominant voice in the scene is Mendelssohn saying, well, there could be millions of other explanations. And the people who go down the path of numerology, of trying to find meaning in numbers, you know, this is just, you know, you're going a place you don't want to go kind of thing. And, uh, and that kind of you know, ends the scene. But I don't know how effective those scenes are at really getting those ideas across. You know, they seem more like they're standing in the way of the progression. And, and you have to ask the question, why would Nicolas Cage take that to a person that he knows is probably not going to accept it? You know, like, what did he think was going to That was kind of how I felt about it. it. It seemed like an unnecessary scene just because what did you think was going to happen? <laughs> right. You know, he's he's not necessarily going to get on board here. Now, the next um, scene, though, I love with the teacher. Yeah, yeah why don't you go ahead and describe this one? Because I, th I think it is a pretty solid uh, scene um, in general. Cage finds out that the teacher who we see in the, the beginning... Um, who helps with the time capsule and then is there to cut the ribbon when they dig it up. He goes to visit her and learn about the child who wrote the letter that his son received, Lucinda Embry. Um, and luckily this teacher uh, still has a very sharp memory. She remembers exactly who she was. Um, but there's this fantastic moment where the teacher comes in I mean, she's this, you know, sweet elderly woman. She comes in with this tray of, of drinks and snacks, and you think it's going to be like this iced tea lemonade sort of moment. And instead, she pours herself a gigantic glass of booze. Yeah. And it's, it's wonderful. You get a nice little reaction moment from Nicolas Cage, and it's, it's that kind of weird little comedy beat that Alex Proyas is able to work into these otherwise really dark in tone films. Um, but yeah, yeah, he goes goes to visit her. Yeah, this this I guess that's one thing. Tonally, this is a this is a dark film. It opens up and we're kind of like, oh, okay, this, this seems fairly straightforward, and then things very rapidly start sort of shifting downhill. Um, you know, Cage is is playing a guy here who's having elements of his worldview, you know, sort of get stripped away. Right, so we, you know, the first or second scene that we see him in at the school, he says, you know, the, the the universe is chaos. There's no, there's no meaning. There's everything is random. Nothing makes sense. And now he's been given and quite literally just handed a document that says, no, you know, some little girl wrote these numbers down 50 years ago, and they all have meaning. And and so that doesn't make sense. So he's trying to to run things down. Uh, we flash back to the the Gothic mansion. Uh, the kid's outside playing soccer, even though we haven't seen him do anything like that up until this point, but that's fine. That's what and kids then he's, do, right? <laughs> that's right. Kids play soccer. And then he is approached by some strange individuals in a car uh, who are associated with or, or bring with them whispers. Cage sees this. He's, he's you know, 
freaked out by it. They hand the kid a little black rock. And then they kind of take off. Um, so this is another sort of Proyas staple, right? Proyas, in all of his films, in one form or fashion, loves to explore the other, right? Outsiders, mm -hmm. you know, people who exist outside the normal realms of society. And in this film, this is them. Um, I think in general, they're just referred to as the whisperers in most of the documentation and media for the movie. The um, angels. <laughs> <laughs> eventually, yeah. But uh, the boy seems unafraid of them, and, and they seem to be actively trying to communicate with him. So one of the... Uh, one of the interesting concepts that this film is, is dealing with is these, these outsiders, if they truly know what's coming and they seem to, and they're here to accomplish this specific task, what is the purpose of the message? Right. That's, that's kind of the question to be thinking about as we go through here. Because ostensibly, this Lucinda girl, she received a message, right? She didn't generate this information. She was given this information that she felt compelled to write down and share. So why? What is the purpose of that? And, you know, it's, it's Cage's question, too. But as an audience, I think we should be asking that question as well. So he's researching this Lucinda Embry. Uh, he finds some pictures of her online. Uh, and there's some nicely sort of photoshopped Rose Byrne is an elderly woman uh, kind of shots. They, they do a good job of, you know, sort of modifying Rose Byrne to make her look like, you know, she could plausibly be her, her much older mother. But uh, they were interrupted by uh, Nick Cage's sister, I guess. 30, supposed to be his sister. 33, 34, 35 minutes into the film. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, and she brings with her a bunch of information. She's in. Uh, she's a nurse, but the main thing we discover from this is that Nick Cage is on the outs with his uh, his family, his parents. That he has sort of uh, you know left them behind, <clears throat> and that he doesn't really want anything to do with them. Um, but we also find out that his dad is a pastor. <sighs> and again, man of science, man mm. of faith, uh, that, that theme coming through once again. He has rejected his father, the man of faith, because he is a man of science. And that seems to have deepened after his wife's death, right? So again, death of wife triggers loss of faith, if he ever had any to begin with. And uh, so now he doesn't want anything to do with that side of his family, which becomes important as the film goes on. Uh, the sister seems nice enough. I mean, she really doesn't have much to do in this movie, but you know, she, she isn't terrible. She definitely seems interested in what's going on with his life, and he doesn't seem to be responding to it at all. But, uh, you know, that's... Again, her main function is to establish Cage's parentage and his relationship with them. But after that scene, we start to see, you know, in addition to the, the drinking, the, the endless drinking that Nicolas Cage does, he becomes obsessed with the news, right? Because he's been given this key, 
right? He, this, this set of clues for him to better understand what's coming in the world. And so he's like, we get these shots of him, like watching the news as the clock is turning over and, you know, there's supposed to be another event the next day. And he's obsessively watching the news, looking at death counts, like trying to figure out, is this the event that was mentioned, you know, because, you know, he doesn't have enough information to know when and where this is going to take place. So he, he keeps drinking. He oversleeps a, a really long time, apparently, because he, he misses the uh, carpool for his kid. Uh, at the school like to pick him up and uh, goes out in traffic and so this film has a couple of really really bombastic moments huge moments massive moments special effects extravaganzas and this is the first one so as Nicolas Cage is going to get his his child from school it's raining He's in his truck, he's stuck in traffic, he's making phone calls, trying to get a hold of people uh, to, uh, I guess he's trying to get a hold of Ben Mendelsohn's character to, you know, set up the date that he wants to get him on because he, he knows he needs to make a change, right? His, <laughs> life is, his life is not tenable at this point, right? The, the drinking, the oversleeping, the leaving your kid at school, something's got something's to gotta give, right? And so, you know, we're about... 40 minutes into the movie, not a ton has happened. Mostly small things, character stuff, you know, this reveal of the numbers, whatever, but but not a lot has happened, and that all changes here. <laughs> so he's... he's uh, it's not funny, but it's sort of it's, funny. It's sort of funny. <laughs> but he's sitting in his truck, and he's, he's looking at his GPS, and he's trying to find an alternate route to his kid's school. Makes sense, right? Very plausible. And as he's sitting there, he notices the longitude and latitude numbers on his GPS. And of course, because he's been obsessing over this document, I think that's why we keep having it shown again and again, the rewriting of the numbers. He recognizes the numbers, right? So after the event that's supposed to take place that day, there are the exact longitude and latitude numbers for his position, like literally where he is sitting at that moment are the numbers. So this, of course, sparks his interest. Uh, there are people out walking around. There's been some kind of accident on the highway. So he gets out of his truck to go look. Maybe this is the event, right? Maybe what's happened that's stalled traffic is the thing. So he's going to go check because uh, he has a number of people dead, right? So like 81 people that are supposed to die in this uh, this tragedy. And, you know, so he goes up, he's looking, there's like a fuel train, a fuel truck that's, that's jackknifed in the road. And, uh, the cop tells him to just get back to his car, you know, whatever. And I, I just want to point out, and this is such a small thing, but it's such a rarity for Alex Proyas to make this kind of small error. But so Nicholas Cage is talking to this cop, right? They're standing, you know, in the road, the cop is facing back towards Nicholas Cage's truck Nicholas Cage is facing forward towards the jackknife trailer. And then the cop sees something over Nicholas Cage's right shoulder and begins to run. Nicholas Cage turns 
And the thing that supposedly the cop was reacting to is coming from Nicolas Cage's left, like hard left. <laughs> and it's like the eye line is just very wrong. It that is such a small nitpick, but again, it's it's just not something you see out of a director like Alex Proyas to get those eye lines wrong. But it doesn't matter. Because what is coming is actually a really incredible sequence. A plane, for reasons unknown, is crashing out of the sky through power lines and across the highway, uh, basically like a, a basically perpendicular to the ground, and you just see it disintegrate. And so, a bunch of people catch fire. Yes. Wow. So like there is there's a lot of digital flame. Uh, we talked about digital flame a lot last week with Ghost Rider. Quite frankly, the digital flames in this movie do not look as good as the ones mm, in Ghost oh, Rider. They do not. Um, but what we get here is a long take, a uh, little over two minute shot. Uh, that is a single unbroken handheld take uh, from when the plane hits to to the end. Um, so Nicolas Cage immediately runs to try and assist people. Um, and this movie is. Uh, it's not gratuitous in its violence, but it is it is brutal in its violence and the way that it shoots it. It is very matter of fact. It's very straightforward. Um, it it doesn't it just doesn't pull any punches, right? It it never looks away. This scene specifically, because like it's a single unbroken take, but it just shows you everything. Uh, there are just people screaming, women at you know women and men asking for help, people on fire. Nicolas Cage is trying to give assistance, but of course, what can he do? Um, he rescues a couple of people. I think he's able to sort of help them. Um, but I don't know. What do you, what do you think of this? Cause it's, it's considered the centerpiece of the movie. Everybody talked about this shot. Um, it's, and for, for good reason, but I mean, I it's, know. it was well done. It was, it was, I guess, um, we talked about the fact that the fire effects don't look good. They um, don't. So I had a hard time embracing the horror of people being on fire because they didn't look like they were on fire. Um, it was a little unexpected. I didn't... I, I felt like there was nothing preparing the audience for this shift. For this no, it sudden... comes out of nowhere. Like, it, I, I, to a certain extent, I, I have to believe that the choice was intentional. I, I guess they wanted it to just be shocking. I guess it felt like the movie had just been snoozing this whole time. Mm -hmm. And then a plane crashes. <laughs> like that's yeah. what has to wake the movie up in order to get it moving again. Cause by by 40 minutes in, you know, I I kind of expect things to be developing. And it didn't feel like the film was developing, and then this happened. So it either it was intentional or it's just a really poorly organized plot <laughs> um, yeah this feels like an inciting event right this feels yeah. like the thing you would kick off the story with and he yeah. has this experience and he's trying to explain it and then there's a convergence of events you know a, maybe a single coincidence where you know he was headed to the event where the kid was going to get the time capsule opened and he brings the thing home he sees you know today's date 
and and the number of people who died the dad's like oh my god that's what just happened to me then he sees the 9-11 number right it feels like this is where you start your movie and i think that's one of the reasons why people felt like the plot lurched is because everything up until this point now kind of ceases to matter for the remainder of the movie like the the themes that they brought up the ideas of science versus faith of randomness randomness and chaos versus determinism and, and lack of free will like those ideas are going to transfer forward but none of the events prior to the plane crash matter anymore at all and so it, it is it is an awkward choice and it just it does it immediately changes the tenor of the film which at this point has been sort of like dark but not necessarily despairing but from this point on like everything in this movie is is building towards something truly horrific and you can kind of feel it right and cage i think does a good job of you know, there's that shot of him right as he gets back before he gets cleaned up and he just like sits down in his armchair yeah. and he's just like staring off into space, basically staring into the camera at the audience and just unresponsive. And like the kid gets like sunk super pissed at him and he's like, you're not even listening to me or whatever. Like it doesn't matter. But, you know, it just it's this very, you know, he's shell shocked. He, he's you know, you might call it PTSD. And then Ben Mendelsohn shows up because we have to have another scene where they talk about the numbers. And, and Ben Mendelsohn is the talk about the numbers guy. Although he seems far more willing to accept that maybe there's something to these given the events of the day, which at least shows a little bit of traction with the character, a little bit of movement. And, and I think Cage here does a good job. Again, he's like, now he has to play the guy who's like writing the line. Like he's right on the edge of I don't know what to do with this information anymore. Uh, he hasn't quite galvanized yet into what he wants to do next, which is try and stop them, which is the, the next section of the film is dealing with the question, okay, so you know events that are going to take place in the future. Should you try to stop them? Because it was all theoretical up until this point, but now it's very real, right? He knows these other events are going to happen, so should he try and stop them? But, again, if the world is determined, right, if we want to be, you know, sophomore philosophy about it, then can you stop it from happening? Is there anything that you can do to cease it? Or is what you're about to do to try and stop it the thing that makes it happen, like, so you know that's it's the matrix the uh really bake your noodle as if would you knock the vase off i had some <laughs> you know like uh, a matrix reference no it's another one but we do get a very weird scene right after that so as cage is wrestling with this this new knowledge uh the whispers appear right and actually sort of approach the boy for the first time and grant him a a vision Right, they point their fingers at him and whisper into his ears and eyes or whatever it is that they're doing, and he actually sees the world on fire. I did see one review that said, How are you supposed to take a movie seriously after you've seen a CG elk on fire? <laughs> and I was like, or a CG moose on fire, and I was like, eh, you know, you have a point. 
Uh, but they give him this vision out of his beautiful, again, the round window, which is supposed to look like the sun, the lights shining through it. Um, but he sees, you know, the, the entire world around him burning uh, in a, a nightmarish fashion. Oh, no. And, uh, you know, he screams, you know, Nick Cage wakes up. But, you know, I, I guess it's fair to say now at this point that one of the events that they eventually uncover is basically the end of the world, right? Like that is what is coming. Uh, the world is going to end and something about these numbers is meant to help them, you know, survive it, get through it, whatever you want to say. But so Cage still lacks answers, right? Hard data. Um, he can't get a hold of Lucinda Embry because she is dead. But so instead decides to track down any of her family. And that is how he stumbles across Rose Byrne. Uh, so Rose Byrne is her daughter, now grown. And, uh, and they, again, they do a good job here because the girl that plays Rose Byrne's daughter, Annie, is the same one that played Lucinda as a child. So, so they, it's just they, Rose Burns all the way down. It's just Rose Burns everywhere. Uh, but they then Nick Cage stalks them, I guess. Low-key. <laughs> Low-key stalking. Maybe. Specific stalking. Uh, but they go to the museum, he introduces himself, and ultimately they have uh, you know some drinks together. The kids are getting along swimmingly, absolutely love love each other um and then cage kind of reveals that none of this is an accident and instead he needs to talk to her about her mom which freaks her out and i actually really like this scene because it's not what you would expect to see in a movie right in a movie you would have the character be initially resistant right like how dare you but then you know your your main character shares some key piece of information that pulls them back in and then but yeah, actually, actually, I was kind of sad for Rose Byrne because it felt like she was thinking, oh, sweet, I got picked up by a really nice young dad with a cute kid. And this is, this right. day's going great for me. And yeah. then he turned out to be crazy. Yeah. Isn't that always turned how out it to goes? Be a crazy stalker that wants to talk about her mom. So always a great way to start. Can't ever a just meet a nice Nicolas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> no, just the crazy one. Um. But so she ditches, just straight leaves, which I think is is actually really cool. It's kind of a, it's a more believable moment. Uh, but he does get the opportunity to explain about the numbers, about the time capsule, you know, everything like that to, to give her all the information because obviously she's not going to exit the narrative at this point. But then uh, Nicolas Cage's like obsession. there's one thing there's one thing I have okay. to call out though I yeah I didn't. I was going to say something about this. Nicolas Cage has an academic ID. Yeah. I was going to ask like, about he that. Sh he flashes his FBI badge. It just says academic. Like, can I get yeah. one of those? I'm a professor at MIT. Here's my badge. It's like, uh, is that just like your work ID? Is that what you used to get into your office? Like, what? How is that supposed to be relevant? And how does that make this amazing. conversation any less terrible? <laughs> But yeah, I know. It's it's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> yes. That's that's how academic IDs work. I can definitely just flash that at us borrows and, and get a free slice of pizza. Um, 
but yeah so the that scene ends and then uh nicholas cage now obsessed with the news watching to see you know what are the events that are happening uh sees that there's an increased terror threat so he's looked up the longitude and latitude it's a subway station and now he believes that there's going to be a, a terrorist incident there so he's got to to protect it again this is the big question can you stop this event that has been prophesied uh, can you cease that uh, that flow from taking place can you break the chain um, which of course would give him some idea that uh, there's a bit of free will left in the universe so we get a, a really nice i mean a, kind of a quintessential proyas scene uh, we kind of pull away from the house and we see the the whispers right these black suited guys just kind of all standing out there watching in a distance uh, so Nicholas Cage looks up the location, sees the, the station, and decides that he's going to go try and stop it. So he drops his kid off at um, his sister's house, which I really didn't care for the language there, because he says, you said you would take him off my hands, which that is what she said, but it's so callous, and the kid's like standing right there. <laughs> I was like, just, that just doesn't seem like a nice way to put it, right? Like, you know, you said yeah. you'd take him off my hands. It's like, well, yes, but that was more of like a euphemism for like, I'll, I'll take care of your you son so you can go have a, a life. say it in a nicer way. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, try and cushion it a little bit there, Dad. Uh, but then we get our probably the one of the only shots that was actually filmed in the United States, which is uh, a truck going over <laughs> Going over a bridge into New York because you can't fake that man yeah. you can fake pretty much anything else but you can't fake that shot um, but uh, so then we get another incredibly brutal disaster scene uh, it's packed subway obviously on a set it looks very much I mean, again it looks kind of like the subway in the matrix but Cage is you know, on the lookout, right? Where's the, the terrorist that's going to blow this place up and, and cause this, this event to happen? Can we stop it? And he sees a dude, like, cradling stuff in his jacket, which uh, I love the way that this resolves. Because the guy starts running. Cage is chasing him. Everybody's freaking out. Transit cops are brought in. Um, everybody's on edge because he had made a call, right? That is, that's what he does. He calls in and he's like, there's going to be an attack or whatever. And uh, so there's cops everywhere. And we get a little bit of a foot chase uh, in the subway. It's a nice, I mean, it's a well shot scene. I mean, Proyas knows how to do stuff like this super, super well. And this is all leading up to basically uh, this massive subway train crash. And as bad as the plane crash was in terms of its violence, right? You know, people on fire, people screaming, you know, people in pain. I don't know about you, but the subway crash is way worse. It was a little more drawn out, so <clears throat> you get more of that extended awfulness. Um, I do admit, though, I, I found it disorienting. Yeah, I think the two... Since we start off inside one of the train cars facing one direction and then the other car was coming the opposite direction. Uh, I think the geography of all of that is, is pretty spotty. 
because it doesn't seem like the trains are positioned where they should be. Yeah, um, it, it was something about like the direction, the movement of the trains toward each other that I felt like it was never really clear which train was which, almost. Or uh, what direction it yeah. was coming from. There were just some really strange arrangement to the cuts that just, it didn't sit right with me. But the violence aspect of it was incredible. Yeah, so the the train, basically a train goes off the rails, the, the, the switching station doesn't work. And so the guy tries to to turn at the last second, ends up taking the train car, you know, sort of sideways. It goes up onto the, um, it goes up onto the platform, and just some immensely violent shots going through. A lot of it CG. I mean, you know, and, and fairly visible CG at this point. But that one that's like it's like inside the front door, and it's hitting people. Yeah. And they're kind of bouncing off the front. That is that is extreme. And there's really nothing else in this film kind of like that. Uh, just that sort of like incredibly visceral and violent. And I just really don't bloody. think it was needed. I don't think this movie no, needed that. No, no, it's it comes a little bit out of left field. Uh, I mean, you know, again, they want you to feel the violence. Um the one thing that I think is a really missed opportunity is that Cage's character never really gets the chance to process. I mean, like this is the second massive, destructive, violent, death-ridden activity that he has seen in basically as many days. Like, and, and he doesn't really ever get a chance to act and process that information. You know, we see him sort of leaving the scene. He's in a daze and there's all these people around him covered in rubble and, and all of that. Like we get those moments, but then we don't really get him going home and trying to reconcile this. Because one, he should be dealing with the fact that he saw this terrible thing. But two, he should also have just realized that there is nothing that he can do to stop these events. Yeah, there was, the, even though he made it in time, what could he have done? <laughs> what could he have done? And that's really the philosophical question that I wanted to see him fight with, is, this, is this, the slow dawning that there's another event coming and there's nothing I can do about it. Because he doesn't even know what that event is yet. But he should be starting to process that this is it. Um, you know, we, we get a, you know, he's like in the shower and he's like, you know, staring at nothing. Like, so I mean, obviously he's not just like bebopping along like, oh, let me put on my workout playlist, you know, or whatever. Like we don't get any of that. But yet I, I really think we needed another, another scene. And, and this is a movie that has a lot of scenes of Nicolas Cage just kind of sitting and thinking about stuff or talking about stuff. So I, I get it. But this is actually one where I, I kind of wanted to see him process this out, think about this. And it kind of just doesn't happen. Um, but really the, the main, you know, the next story beat is that um, the daughter, Rose Burns character, contacts him because he said this, this was a thing that was going to happen. There was going to be something happened today. He didn't know what. <clears throat> And so that's enough hard evidence for her to sort of join him on his crusade to figure this out. And she's kind of on board, which I, I really like Rose Byrne in this movie. I like she's, her in all movies. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I I think she's she's a little bit on the line of not having enough to do. I think she needed more involvement and investment in this. Like she's she's kind of there to support Nick Cage to provide him with some additional info, but it really feels like they needed one more thing. It would have been nicer if they had known each other already. If we didn't have to go through the pain of introducing them to each other, um, it may have been easier. But because that character, we also need to like get to know her. There just didn't mm-hmm. seem to be enough time to have her be someone other than just a newbie in the film. You don't really ever get more than that. Yeah, I there's a little bit of stuff going on in the background about confluence and Cage kind of hits at it or hints at it and says like I was I guess after the plane crash he's like I was there. I was on that. My son's the one who got the thing out of the time capsule. I was on that that highway when that plane crashed. Like I'm involved in this. My family is supposed to be involved in this. That would have been cool to see them splinter that out to be like Cage and this uh, and Rose Byrne's character had been crossing paths their whole lives and just didn't realize that they were significant, right? Like, yeah. Because we're never even really told what what uh, Rose Byrne's character does for a living. You know, why couldn't she have been, you know, at MIT as well? Or maybe she worked at the college that he went to, you know, to get his undergrad. Like, there could have been ties to them because the idea of them being sort of fated to be involved in this is sort of already in the movie. So you've, you've established that that's a thing anyway. Why not just push that further so that you can get some of the hard work of getting the relationship out of the way. But in a lot of ways, this film is a bit like a a brownie that hasn't been baked all the way. It is very, parts of it are very good, but it is not baked. (laughs) Many of its yeah, aspects just, are not fully baked. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to say that there's like, you know, stuff on the cutting room floor or anything like that. It's it's certainly possible, but it really just feels more like we had this host of ideas and we just quite didn't didn't quite know how to arrange them all into something that's truly coherent, right? It's functional but it's not satisfyingly coherent in a way that people are going to buy. Um, and the movie's so obsessed with expounding upon Cage's background, because uh, the next scene, like right after she's reintroduced, the entire next scene of them riding in the car together is him explaining what happened to his wife. Yeah. Um, which again... It's okay because they've they've established that the event that killed his wife was one of the events on the page, which again, in, in perhaps a different version of the draft, of a different draft of the script, we probably should have known it earlier. And I, I think, again, would have contributed to this idea that these random accidents were all ones that tied to these these people in a specific way. Um, you know, and it just doesn't really get played out. Um, and as much as I'm, I'm glad to know that, you know, Nicolas Cage's wife died in this way, we kind of know that already. Like we know she obviously died suddenly. We know that it was probably tragic. 
expounding upon it in a in a three minute scene that could have been used to establish other things, and, and Rose Byrne doesn't even get a chance to respond. Right? She doesn't even say anything back after he tells this story, other than like, "Wow, that sucks." Yeah, it felt more like a you know, we know we need to do this, so let's just I mean, get this scene out of the way. I mean, Burns' husband is never mentioned, so why couldn't she have a response saying like, you know, well, when when Teddy left me for so and so, you know, it, it, there was opportunity there for greater development, and it it just doesn't happen. Because um, now the movie feels compelled to to rush to our our next sets of understanding, right? The next sort of the big knowing. thing that we need to understand exactly <laughs> and i mean i like that this movie is dealing with the the downside of prophecy right and here they start leaning way heavy into it so i read a, an interview with proyas where he said that one of his influences that he had in mind when he was building this film was the exorcist because one thing the exorcist does really really well and, and executes on a on a unbelievable level mostly because William Friedkin is insane (laughs) but also because the exorcist since it tries to handle this exorcism right this this incredible supernatural event in the quote-unquote most realistic way possible shooting it documentary style having everything done in this very sort of natural way one of the things the exorcist does is it it spends the first, you know, hour of the movie removing all scientific plausible options for what's happening to Reagan, right? The whole movie is about feeling the desperation of a mother who's watching her child disintegrate before her eyes and exhausting every resource at her disposal, which, and her resources are vast, to try and help her daughter. It's, it's literally the film saying, we've exhausted every scientific possibility only these implausible supernatural things are left. So when you get to those supernatural things, you are perfectly willing to accept them as the reason, right? You are like, I am ready to understand what's going on. This is the only explanation that makes sense because you've shown me that all the other ones don't. And you can feel this movie trying to do that. that and that feels like a, a horror convention that kind of surprised me that it would be a part of this film. Like having such yeah. close ties to horror, it works and it makes sense, um, you know, given kind of the background of the film. But when it came out, it got put so hard in that disaster film category. And it mm-hmm. feels like those parts of the film are so blown up that the horror influence is sort of covered up by it. And that's sad. Yeah, there's really not much horror left. This, the next scene, right, right after the truck scene, is is probably the most overtly horrific, I guess, um, because they they go to Lucinda's childhood home where she would have lived when she was actually young enough to write the numbers, and then we're introduced to another um, plot element, right? Um, that's the uh, the last numbers on the page, the ones where Lucinda was, was cut off from finishing them when her teacher took it away, are two E's, which originally Cage believes are, are threes, that it just, you know, somebody, or that he originally believes are threes, but Rose Byrne says, no, my mom 
you know, sometimes she would write her E's backwards. It was like this weird thing she would do. And so they find out, no, they're not threes, they're, they're E's. But they don't know what they mean. Is it initials or, or, or something? So they go inside the house. We do get a little bit of opportunity here for Rose Byrne to explain her relationship with her mother, right? A bit of character building. Um, we see that she built her a little clay angel and the mother had kept it when she didn't realize it, which, of course, touches to another thing later in the film. Uh, we get a little picture of them together, you know, sort of trying to sort of build out her backstory, but still pretty inadequately, if we want to be honest. Um, but ultimately, it's all leading to the mother's childhood bedroom and her bed specifically. So they're looking around and Cage notices that there are more scratch marks, right? So apparently Lucinda, when deprived of writing utensils, would scratch the things that she was hearing into the surfaces around her, which again, seems very inefficient, but there you go. Hmm. I like this set. Uh, again, it's a sort of Proyas set. It's dingy, it's dirty, there's water spots, and the paint's very, falling off. Very it's, nicely decorated. It's it's very well designed in terms of its its production and layout. <clears throat> and again, it's it's shot for horror, right? It's it's very specific directed lighting, lots of dark angles, lots of dark corners. Uh, when they go into her bedroom. You know, again, it's it's mostly just flashlights, and and her bedroom is just covered wall to wall with you know disaster stories, you know, implying that she had been keeping track that even though the numbers that had gotten put in the time capsule had been sort of sealed away, she was still hearing them or, or capable of knowing what was going on, <laughs> knowing. But that all leads to uh, her bed, so they go underneath her bed and. Cage sees some scratch marks, he lifts it up, and they find out that the last the last two, what they thought were numbers, are actually uh, two E's, and the E's stand for, since they're in the place of the, they're in the place of the number of people killed, that the E's actually stand for everyone else, <laughs> and that that was... That was Lucinda's <laughs> biggest revelation, was that the last event that she records, um, the one that she was interrupted from writing down completely, everyone else dies, right? There is no count for the number. It's just everyone. So Cage steps on another black rock, which is what the whispers handle. And then we get really the most horrific scene in the movie, or the one shot for the most horror as the whisperers approach uh, the two kids in the truck and try to get inside. Um, it's very dark. It's grimy, shot through the windows. Spike um, from just, Buffy is there. <laughs> it's certainly what he looks like. I kept thinking it was, what's that guy's name? James Marston? Something like Not that. Marsden, it's Marston. Spike from Buffy. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they just, they look like characters from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Blonde hair, <laughs> you know, pale skin. And that's all, and their approach is paralleled with Cage's discovery of the, the everyone else. Um, and, and this sort of firmly puts us into the, the end game in terms of what's going on. And so this was the point in the film where, you know, they reveal, okay, the thing that's coming is going to kill everybody. And, you know, I'm looking at the runtime going like, dude, we've got, we've got 40 minutes 
left yeah, in what, this movie. What else is there? <laughs> like, you've just established that the, the world is going to end. Like, what else do we need to know here? But as I watched it this time, I remember having that reaction the first time I watched it as well. But what we get this time, and I think what the point of, of this reveal at this point is, is that you have to see this character reconcile the fact that there's nothing they can do. Right? Like, that is the point of this next set of sequences. <clears throat> so Cage, um, the, the kid honks the horn, which is really smart. Again, like, finally, characters doing smart things. Um... And Cage chases one of the whisperers down. He's he's gotten the gun out. Um, I love how the and then he low pans him. That was he, cool. He does, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love how Cage can't hold the gun still. I don't know if that's like an intentional acting choice or if the gun was just legitimately heavy because guns are really quite heavy and they're hard to hold out with your arm outstretched. Um, but he's just constantly shaking when he's pointing the gun, which I just I don't know. I found that hilarious. Uh, but yeah, the alien, uh, oh, whoops, the alien, the whisperer, the whisperer <laughs> whatever the excuse fuck he me, is. he, uh, you know, opens his mouth and, and shines this bright light at mm. him and, and he loses track. But really, you know, again, these, these characters now have to reconcile the fact that this next event is, is, is it, right? Like everyone is going to die. And so what do we do with that? What did you think? Now the the you know the next scene after they're sort of discussing you know, the realities of it, Cage goes up and, and lays down in his son's bed with him, and they have a, a sort of nice quiet conversation. Uh, it's shot above. They're they're sort of back to back to each other, you know, making eye contact occasionally. And uh, I don't know. I I really liked this scene. It was another one where I thought Cage did a, a very good job. I sort of wish that we'd had more moments like this. Um, yeah, yeah. The the kid, I mean, nobody likes little kids, um, but this kid's actually a pretty decent actor. Um, he doesn't annoy the hell out of me. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what sort of magical skills you have to have in order to make that happen, but he's pretty talented, so I wouldn't have minded seeing more of him. And more of their relationship, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. I think that would have... I don't know. It, it would have helped a lot. Because I do like those little moments. Definitely. Yeah, I, I really feel like some more of those would go through. We do get a reinforcement of the sign language, you know, sort of I love you that they do together. Um, which becomes important towards the end, but they, they do it again just to make sure and, and reinforce that idea. But I love that the next morning when they wake up, everything is turned to kind of yellow haze. And one thing, basically what Cage is about to, to discover is that the sun is, is getting ready to emit a massive solar flare. And this solar flare, which he had written a paper about it or something, like it's it's run over very quickly that he'd written a paper about some other star that had done this, but that it's actually our star that's going to do it. And so he had run some numbers on a and read some on a on a another star in a different cluster. 
and he's basically figured out that our son is going to do the same thing. And when it does, it's going to, to basically roast the entire planet. Like, like the, the event will, will destroy everything. Uh, so the little girl was, was, uh, Abby, she was drawing on a, on a picture they found at the, the mom's house, uh, of a, I guess it's Ezekiel's wheel. Um, and, and, you know, they, uh, she says, oh, it's, it's the sun. That's what they're looking at. Um, cause the mother had been obsessed with that picture and then, you know, cage, it, it clicks and he's like, wait, this is what's coming. One thing I, I was sort of looking at, like the film has had this kind of, whenever they're outside, it's had this kind of warm yellow tint to everything. But I really think they should have had more like, oh, it's an unprecedented heat wave, you know, oh, everything's warmer and, and all this different stuff just to sort of seed that idea. Because we've had lots and lots of references to the sun in the movie yeah. at this point, like all over the place, but nothing about heat. Right. And then they just kind of drop heat. I think when he calls his parents, he says, hey, this heat that we're having, it's not going to go away. It's not going to get better. Like this is this is a problem. But in essence, he's he's figured out what the event is and, and what's coming. And now the question is, is, can it be stopped? And here's where I think the movie falls down on the thriller front. Because there is no way that anybody can survive this. But the movie insists on dangling it in front of us. Oh, we're going to get to these caves and we'll be fine. Uh, we're going to head to this underground shelter and we'll be okay. But it's very clear <laughs> that is not going to be of help. And and the character's wrestling with this. I, I don't really feel like it's as dramatic as it should be. Uh, or even could be, depending on what you wanted to do. Um, I think it would have been much more interesting if Nicolas Cage, straight from the start, with everyone involved, was super honest and said, listen, this is going to kill us all. The numbers are the only option. And unless we can figure out what those numbers mean and what they are, it's not going to make any difference. Like, I think that would have been a much more interesting sort of dramatic thrust instead of having this kind of like, oh, we might be able to do this to save ourselves or we might be able to do this. I don't know. What do you think? I, I, I think like the movie tries to remain suspenseful here, even though it's played its full hand of cards. And I just don't think it necessarily does it well. It, I think it struggles a lot. Um, I don't know. The I guess I kind of felt like I wanted the film not to just stop. It just felt like it stopped. It felt like we had that big reveal. We had that moment with you know the the kids and then the spike coming for the kids, and we we find this big moment, and then the the film decides to just slow down so much. Um, that it kind of lost me a little bit. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't, I, I just felt like it dropped the ball a little bit and. Well, it know, feels like. I, I don't know what you, I don't know what I'd cut out though. I guess that's what I'm struggling with. I'm looking at all of this material. I'm like, how would I change this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's a cut that would fix it. I mean, I'm sure there is, but. 
it feels like they've made this massive revelation and then we take this detour where yeah. it's finally made Nicolas Cage's character, it, it's finally made him say, I need to fix things, right? Which is, is a good reaction. It's an understandable reaction to knowing that the world is going to end, to call your family and say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I didn't but mean I, to be such really a dick. But I don't really see that character's journey taking him to that conclusion given what we've seen. Yeah, not yet. Like, he's not broken yet. Like, he needs to hit bottom first, and he hasn't done that yet. So, I mean, I really think that all of this should be happening. Like, the phone call with the parents, I, I would almost think that maybe he should have a scene where he thinks about it and then doesn't. But then... Because, like... If you look at the phone call with his parents that he has, because he opens up the locket from the wife, right? He finds that. And it was supposed, it was either a present for her or from her. I'm guessing it was from her. And he says, you know, she really wanted me to call you. And he calls his dad. And then he tells his dad, like, you need to get underground. Like, you need to get out of here. And the dad's like, I'm not going to do that. If it's my time, it's my time. It's, it's, you know, whatever. And then you see Cage falter, but like, Later on, he tells everybody, like, this is, again, he's like, there's nothing that's going to save you. So I don't know why he's telling his dad this lie. <laughs> of, yeah. You know, go down and get somewhere safe because there is nowhere safe. And he knows it because uh, he's an astrophysicist at MIT. Shocker. But, you know, it's it, it just doesn't thematically work. Um, and I, I don't think it has the emotional heft required. But as, uh, you know, as everything is progressing, apparently his son has been infected with the signal. He finds him writing numbers. I don't know what numbers he's writing. Like, that's the other piece of this here. Like, the numbers that Lucinda wrote were, the were, these, were the dates of the future events. Well, the, the world is about to end. Uh, there are no more dates. So what is what he writing? Numbers? Yeah. Um. Unless it's like future events beyond, but again, the mechanics of how that works have been so sort of loosely defined, it's it's hard for us to know. <clears throat> so here's where the movie, I think, just really breaks down and feels like it's chopped up from other pieces. Because John gets the idea that there's still something to be gleaned from the numbers, Right, that the numbers haven't stopped yet. There's still a piece of information that he needs. So he remembers the story about the little girl carving the numbers on the door. He breaks into his son's school, magically finds this door. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think there could have been other ways to get this information to the character. This is interesting. Uh, it's fine. But so we've been led to believe that this event is coming very soon. So we are under a significant time crunch. He piles everybody into the truck, not just himself, everybody into the truck goes and gets the door, goes immediately back to his house, takes a heat gun, starts peeling the paint off the door to get to the numbers. And apparently hasn't told Rose Byrne what he's doing. Like, I'm going to assume that the school is a little ways away. Like, he had to get on the highway to get there because that's where the plane crash took place. 
Are you telling me that they went to the school? He said he said nothing on the way to the school about what he was doing. He goes inside the school, t- rips the door off its hinges, drags it back out, breaks into the school to do so, brings it back out. They drive all the way back to his house and he has still not said to anyone in the car what he is trying to do. There's no time. <laughs> because he he then explains to Rose Byrne in the shed what he's doing. And she's like, I don't care about that. We're going to the cave. So I'm like, you must have had like 20 or 30 minutes in the car that you could have explained all of this to them. Why are we doing this now? Other than quote unquote drama. There's no time. There's no time. There's There's just no time. There's There's never never any time. time. But so he finds the numbers, which, you know, I've painted doors before. That paint's got to be on there pretty thick. That's not how that works. If you can't see those scratches behind it. And even if you take it off, the scratches aren't just going to reveal themselves that way. That's not how Um, paint works either. You can't just put a heat gun against that and get that paint off. No, um, but whatever. So he gets the he gets the numbers, but Anna has left with the kids, and he doesn't know where. Like, why couldn't she just wait a minute? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like twenty seconds later that uh, all this happens. And again, if he had, you know, we've, if we'd seen a reasonable conversation of them in the truck where he's explaining what he's doing, I'd. I'd like to believe that she might have stayed. I don't know. And that's extra infuriating because characters have behaved so reasonably in this movie. Right. For the most part, they've made good choices, made reasonable, uh, you know, made reasonable choices. But, of course, all the cell phone signals are down because the solar flare is ramping up. um, So they can't, you know, communicate with each other effectively. And... There's this came a cat and mouse. It really doesn't matter. She go, winds up at a gas station. The whispers show up, kidnap the kids. She hops in another car, gets into another absolutely brutal car accident, like semi truck taken out a Jeep, just wipes the floor with it. Did you kind of uh, feel like she was and the Rose one Byrne who gets had killed. the Nicolas Cage moment? Um, oh, like she definitely the, gets more of a freak out than he ever does. Like she for has sure. her big yeah. freak out in that parking lot, and it's fabulous. She's just losing her mind. It's great. <laughs> yeah, even when she's on the way there, when they're in the car, she's just like screaming at the top of her lungs. We'll call it when we get there. You know, all this stuff. Like she's she's cracking under the weight of this information, which yeah. I think is really that's something that we need to explore with these characters. Um, you know, Cage is cracking a little bit, but he's driven to get the answers, right? He's got that to anchor himself to. But we we really, really need to see these characters who who now have knowledge that other people don't have, right? Like at this point in the film, they don't have that. And then, of course, in the next scene at the gas station, everybody gets the information because we get the emergency broadcast system, you know, transmission where, you know, the White House is like, <laughs> yeah, we're all dead. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, try not to uh, try not to freak out, but uh, everybody in the world's gonna die here in a, a couple of minutes. So you know, put down that bag of chips and, and just maybe go hug your dad. I don't know. <laughs> um, and and so like everything, the the tenor of the movie changes at this point because they no longer have secret knowledge that could help them or or provide them with something. Now everybody knows, which is just kind of a weird place to be. Well, you kind of uh, wonder the, what's next. Like, what is the film gonna do? For its mm-hmm. concluding moments. <laughs> yeah, and, and that is one thing I'll say that 
you know, if if you're if you're following the film along, if you are down with what it is throwing out, this is one of those rare movies that actually is kind of hard to pin down what's coming next if you've never seen it before. Like, where are we going with this? If is everybody going to die? Like, is that what's going to happen? Are the kids going to somehow survive? Is Nicolas Cage going to take them to some kind of like shielded bunker? Like, you know, because that's what the day that the Earth stood still, which is, is another movie that's. Uh, the screenwriter of this movie, uh, Steve Hazeldean, I believe. Um, that was a movie that he did an uncredited uh, script rewrite on. And, and that's what uh, Day of the Earth Stood Still is all about, is like getting to safety, um, you know, going to the deeper bunker to protect you from the alien radiation or whatever. Like, there's, there's all kinds of that stuff. But, uh, you know, regardless... It, we don't know. Like it is, it is a huge question mark as to where this is headed. Uh, the kids get kidnapped. As we said, Nicholas Cage gets a little bit of a freak out. He's like screaming at her to stay put while he's in the truck. Rose Byrne refuses to believe that, you know, this is all going to work out or that he's got some kind of plan. They see another black rock. They know the whispers are there. Kids get taken. Again, the the Rose Byrne crash is is another absolutely brutal one. Um, it's it's real bad, and you can see it coming. It's one of those you know now in in you know sort of modern film, you kind of can tell by the camera moves when a a, a car is about to just get absolutely destroyed, um, and they do, man. They flip that jeep like fifteen times. <laughs> it is insane. Uh, but Rose burns inside. She she's slowly dying, but she's not dead yet because Nicolas Cage has to show up and she has to give him the black rock <clears throat> so that he knows where to go. Because that's that's like the thing is that the numbers, um, the last set of numbers that she couldn't write on the paper she wrote on the door, point directly back to the childhood home where Lucinda grew up, or or close to it. Which doesn't really make uh, any sense at all. So again, question mark, like, what is happening? What is going on? And uh, the whispers certainly aren't doing anything to help us understand. There's making a lot of strange eye movements. Uh, I will say there's some really good uh, stunt driving with Nicolas Cage's truck. He hops like a, a parking barricade and that thing headed into that gas station dude that was impressive and he does like a really nice 180 180 turn park I, I don't know it was really impressive i was like dude that stunt money got it that stunt guy got his money that day but, you know it's it, they're trying to ramp up the excitement the tension the, you know whatever you want to say and and it's not really working unfortunately like it's it's still kind of dull in terms of what's going on but uh we get to see rose Byrne die we get another little moment cage is like oh, i'm so sorry i didn't want this to happen um so all of this has been been leading to you know back to the uh lucinda's house her childhood home uh, and to a, a riverbed where all of the black rocks have come from. So this is where all of the, the whispers have been this whole time. And everything's been leading back to that. Cage arrives. Uh, the, the abandoned car is there. He moves his way down. And uh, does he see a couple of deer? He does, doesn't he? So I, I think, you know, we're, we're getting to the point now where we're starting to, to get even more religious imagery, right? Because his kids are there. Right. 
he finds them. Uh, they're both holding white rabbits, uh, which of course are these these interesting symbols. You know, innocence, purity. They're white rabbits specifically. Innocence, purity. Um, you know, procreation. Probably a little bit that, there too. Yeah, get the Adam and Eve thing. The right biblical you know, references right biblical and, and references the, everywhere and a, a bit of noah's ark you know there's a male and female deer that the cage sees so maybe they're harvesting those two uh but in essence there's some stuff going on behind the scenes and so as he approaches the whispers you know come out uh his son believes that you know they're all going to go together but as they approach one of the whispers i guess the main whisper whisper number one tells him uh tells the boy that's you know, the father isn't allowed. He's not one of the chosen. So I'm thinking there's some kind of, you know, the, the 23 females, you know, 36 male, you know, whatever the, the, the minimum numbers to, you know, restart a society for genetic diversity. There's probably that, or at least some piece of that. that but of course we don't get bit. any indication that that's what it is. No, no. The movie at this point while it may have started off trying to feel sort of rooted in science, uh, I think we've, we've, un, we've unshackled from that at this point. And, and uh, it's not thematically inappropriate. Obviously Nicholas Cage's character has become unshackled from his scientific background. And he is also, you know, enmeshed in another world. Now this, this faith versus reason, uh, you know, sort of dichotomy that the film set up. And so as they approach, uh, the whisper says, Nicholas Cage can't come. And, and now the boy has to, to, to reconcile that. Um, which here we get the film's only real explanation for what all of this was for. Because at this point, dear listener, if you haven't sort of thought about it, the, a very legitimate question can be asked, which is why? Why the numbers why the prediction of these events? What purpose did it serve? Why go through all this trouble? I mean, I don't know if, if maybe it's just me, but it seems to me like the whispers at any point could have just kidnapped those kids and just disappeared. <laughs> Nothing would have changed. Um, but here we are, right? We're in this riverbed and Nicolas Cage says the whole thing was so that when they got to this point, right, when the, the, the numbers brought them to this location was so that his son could make the decision to go as opposed to being forced to go, um, which is really the only explanation for why all of this has taken place is to bring them all to this position. And then so they could make the choice to go rather than being forced to. Um, they needed to know. Right. They needed the to knowing. know. They had to know. And, and what was the knowing? <laughs> knowing the knowing is the knowing is half the battle. Half the battle, not the whole battle, but half. The battle. Half the battle, and the other half is aliens. That's I right, think. aliens and knowing. That's the two halves that you need <laughs> to know uh, for real. For any good apocalypse, you need the knowing. And I don't know if I buy that. Uh, that seems like a lot of trouble. To, More to trouble than other movie aliens would take. And and why all of the other events? Yeah. Why let them know? Is it just to be proof, to be evidence that they were serious? That and yes, why this let is Lucinda ending? know? Why her? Right. 
Um, so here I think may have been a, a dropped plot thread because as we said, the, the, the kid is, he has hearing problems, but Cage makes specific point at one, you know, when he meets Rose Byrne to say he's not deaf, he can hear. Um, so it almost makes me think that there is something about him, right? Well, did you see the most recent Predator movie? No. Okay. Uh, I'm not telling you to. In fact, okay. I would say probably yeah. don't because uh, it's quite bad. I That's mean, and, what and, I it's, and it's bad for a Predator movie, which is oh. saying something. But one of the things that that movie deals with is that the Predators, apart from coming here to hunt us, they also want something from us. And one of the things that they want is, is tied to our next stage of evolution, right? Our next step. And the screenwriters of that film, they make the next step of evolution a young autistic boy, uh, which I think is a fantastic thing to do. Uh, from a story standpoint, the movie completely botches it, absolutely mishandles it as a concept. But I think this movie's doing something kind of along those lines, that there's something about these people, these kids, that they they represent some next step. And so they're, they've been chosen and selected. And maybe Lucinda also was one of those. And had she not killed herself, she would have been taken, you know, with them perhaps, um, or had she not died? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't remember if they said she killed herself. I thought they did, but I, I could be wrong about that. Who knows? Um, who knows, right? doesn't really matter. But so ultimately the, the boy and the girl, uh, Abby and, uh, gosh, I can't remember the kid's name right now, but, child. Um, <laughs> yes, the child, the boy, um, they, they're, they're going to get the chance to, uh, to, to continue on. And so we get a really actually very well acted scene from cage who at this point in the film has been a pretty terrible parent most of the time, like trying, but not good. Um, we get a really good scene between him and his son where he's trying to, to explain he's trying to, to help push his son, you know, out the door. Like you, you need to go do this. This is important for you so that you can survive. Um, and, and he really kills it. Like I think I Cage this, actually, he does a great job. This um, is my favorite bit of performance from him in the movie. Yeah. It's, it's just really well executed. The moment when the, the ship reveals itself, like right as everything's building to a head. Uh, I also really love cause Cage just kind of drops to his knees in, in awe, you know, like yeah, it's a really good, I, like big <clears throat> blockbuster moment. Mm hmm. A lot of movies don't do that anymore. They go for the subtle approach. And Nick Cage does not do subtlety. No, no. Uh, and I think this is, you know, in Roger Ebert's review, when he said, like, it's awesome on occasion, I think that this is the moment that he's talking about. Like, there's, it's it's a really cool, well-shot reveal of this, you know, massive spinning spaceship sort of coming down from the sky. Um, it's a cool design as well. Like it, it definitely evocative of some of the famous starship designs from history, you know, 2001 and, uh, it's, you know, sort of spinning rotational ships. And then of course, uh, uh close encounters of the third kind, you know, all of the lights and everything. But so, I mean, I, I really like 
as this happens because Cage initially believes that he he's going too, and, and then you know he's he's told he can't, and it's in this moment that he sort of we get to see this full realization. Like he realizes, oh, I'm not going. I have to stay behind, but my son definitely has to go. So I have to convince him that this is the best choice. And, and it's a, a really cool moment. And, and as we said, Cage just really kills it. Like he's, you can see the initial shock and despair that he's not going to be able to participate. But then the the resolution to set that, you know, sets in that, you know, hey, I, I have to do this and I have to convince my son to go. It's really and, nicely uh, handled and very honest and... Um, I like how he does that kind of quick turnaround where he has the realization and then immediately it's not like a bargaining <laughs> with the aliens to go with them. He immediately right. There's no, oh it. man, come on. Yeah. Yeah, there's none of that. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's very good. The kid's acting falls down a little bit. I mean, it's, it's, this is probably his weakest moment in the film is being asked to, to you know, sort of pull these, these very deep emotions out. But it's a minor quibble. He's he's actually done a, a really good job throughout most of this movie. But this scene works. It's shot well. It's lit really well. I love the lighting in this movie, actually. I do, I think too. most of it is really good. Um, just the right balance of darkness and light, which, you know, Proyas is just excellent at. None of his stuff ever looks flat, uh, which I really like. You know, most modern movies, uh, not most, but a lot of modern movies are shot very plain, you know, the lighting is very straightforward and, and they're you know, simple setups, easy to move. And, and Proyas just never does that, even in, in simple scenes. I mean, these are, this is basic shot, reverse shot stuff, you know, with Cage and this kid. He wouldn't have to do it this way to get the job done, but he chooses to shoot it in this, this really sort of hyper stylized way. And it's, it's really good. But so he, he tells the kid, this is, this is why we're here, is so you can make this choice and, and you need to go and we'll be together and gives him the locket from his mom. And, and then finally the aliens, you know, put off their whisper disguise and they're revealed to be angels. Not right? spikes from Buffy, but angels. No, but angels. Angel from Buffy. <laughs> no, there's no Boreanas in this film. No, no, Damn. no. Uh, so the kids go to to start a new land, and and here's where again I feel like the film missteps slightly because this is the climax, like this is the moment of of departure, of renewal, you know, all of the the upbeat and positive moments of of where this story can go are happening here, but this is not where the film ends. We get a nice, you know, beautiful moment as they rise into the ship. Their their wings emerge. You know, Cage sees them, and and Very he cheesy. now is. It's a bit <laughs> cheesy, but it's. I think it's meant to be indicative of Cage's like, you know, full acceptance of the universe being designed and determined by something. Yeah. Um, we do get the nice, you know, sign language moment between him and his son. I love you forever, which you know is very sweet. It's a bit saccharine, but it's it's executed well. And, uh, you know, they rise into the ship and, and that's it. And, and, you know, again, it's, it's a little bit hokey, a little bit religious, a little bit new age. Um, but I think as a package, it, it's this, the moment, the scenes, they still kind of work. But the problem is that we don't go with them here. Like, we know what's coming for Cage. Like, we know what's going to happen. 
But unfortunately, the movie has spent all this time building up these big disaster scenes, and now it's got to pay off. That's right. We can't just end here as much as we might want to, um, even though we probably should. So the ship sort of folds up in this cool way. It's very crystalline, kind of Superman Returns-ish, if you want to call it that. <laughs> and then they uh, they shoot into the sky and take off, and we see that there are dozens of these ships taking off from all over the planet, implying that it's not just these two kids right that's it's many of them uh, again it's very grand uh you know a sort of newer film that touches upon a lot of the same angles and shots for the ships was uh Denis Villeneuve's arrival you know did similar kind of stuff and trying to get the scale but really my favorite shot in the movie happens in this set of of shots and that is you know cage in the riverbed with uh, the floating rocks Right. So like as the ship's taking off and the anti-gravity drive is working or whatever, uh, it pulls up all of the black rocks out of the, the creek bed and they kind of float around him. And it's just a it's a beautiful shot, just gorgeous looking, um, you know, and, and this should be it. Like we should end the movie here. But again, we've established that the end of the world is coming and this movie is definitely going to show us that. It's, it's not going to let us not get away with that. Yeah. Uh, so Cage collapses and, and we flash cut to the next morning. Uh, the sky is even more uh, yellow and red. He's covered in sweat because the heat is increasing. Um, I don't know if you saw, there was a van in the background of one of the crowd scenes that just says, uh, Jesus is the way, the truth. I saw that, yeah. Um, I thought that was a bit on the nose, right? But But you will see that. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, these, these are not, you know, these are all images that we've come to expect in our, you know, into the world sequences. Uh, he does get to lock eyes with Ben Mendelsohn one last time. Yep. No idea why. Drive past but, every uh, person, you know, at the end yeah. of the world. Because Boston is a very small town. When oh, yeah. Think about it. Uh, I've watched a lot of Cheers. I understand. Everybody yeah. would just be outside like that. Yeah. And everybody knows your name. You yeah. Know. Uh, that's where I want to go. So Cage somehow is able to navigate these uh, incredibly crowded streets and bridges uh, in his truck uh, as the city lays in ruins. And uh, again, in this film that has wrestled with, you know, science versus faith, uh, determinism versus uh, free will, he is now sort of fully re-embraced and, and, come back into the fold, I guess, with his family. So he approaches their home, uh, goes inside, uh, his, his sister opens the door, and, and he just kind of reconnects with his parents and, and the, the last words that are spoken. His father says, you know, this is not the end. And Cage just says, I know. And, and so he has, has fully embraced this this opposing viewpoint, right? We're told right at the beginning that he holds one view. Now he has embraced the other. Uh, and he does so right as the apocalypse begins. And in terms of apocalypse, special effects extravaganzas, it's a pretty good one. Um, yeah. Everything you know, sure gets destroyed. Everything gets destroyed. Gets destroyed real good. We actually get to see this like line of fire as the, the, uh, Solar flare is is extending over the Earth and and sort of wiping it out completely. Aside from the fact that you know our sun wouldn't be able to generate solar flares that big, 
that's okay. It's it's a disaster movie. Stuff happens. Um, we can we can let go again. The science has been sort of fully <laughs> left behind at science. this point. We're not science. worried about that. Uh, and and Proyas's, uh, you know, love and and uh, desire to uh, tell science fiction stories is is fully reasserted itself. And so now we flash to, you know, another hopeful scene, right? And, and this, unfortunately, is, again, I would have rather just ended with the ships. You know, the, the cocoon ending, right? Like, they just take yeah. off and everything's fine. Like, it's, don't worry And we about know it. it all works out because we're not idiots. Right. Um, but here we, we flash back. We see the kids dropped onto a... No Man's Sky planet. On Onto No Man's Sky planet. Uh, or really, they were dropped into a... a green screen studio and told to run away from the camera. Look um, like you're they, looking at stuff. <laughs> but they, they go towards this giant white tree. Uh, and as we said earlier, like Proyas is, is a symbol guy. Like he's, he's very good at visual representations. He's a capable visual storyteller. And I do, as I said, firmly believe that if this was in the hands of, of a lesser director, this movie would be an unwatchable nightmare. Which it most definitely is not. It is not that. But this white tree, it's it's obviously Adam and Eve, right? It's tree knowledge. The, the boy and the girl are running towards it. Mm. You know, it's the Garden of Eden. It's mm. it's you know the new world, you know, made new. And and I, I, I my only issue with this, it's it's very pretty. It's it's meant to be triumphant. The music swells. But what this opens up for me is that these angel aliens, they already did this for us, right? Isn't that what they're saying? That humans, or, or whatever we are, we they dropped us off on Earth, you know, however long ago. And then we built a mythology around them, angels, gods, you know, creatures from the sky, crystalline entities, whatever. And then we com- we lived on that planet for a while. And then messed apparently it up. <laughs> we messed it up pretty bad. And they apparently knew that it was going to explode because determinism, you know, determinism. And, and they just left us there and they just came and got a couple of us right at the end. <laughs> We're like, well, we'll try that one again, guys. Good Hopefully this sun won't explode. Um, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's very beautiful, but it, in terms but how of how long science, have they been doing this? Right. Like how many, how many restarts have we gotten? Is this like restart millions five? of years, <laughs> thousands of planets? I mean, do they just have nothing else going on that they just kind of hang out? Watch we just really like planet. these people. Yeah, they're just real big fans. Uh, I don't know. It, it's very interesting, but you know, it, it very much is this, you know, the, the Adam and Eve side of things again. And, um, and this is, is finally where the movie, where the movie ends. And it's not a bad ending. Like I said, I, I don't, I, I don't find it as satisfying as, as some alternative options just with what we're shown, but um, you know, it's, it certainly does it's meant to grab you on that hopeful note, but I don't think it's enough of a hopeful note to recover from watching the world literally explode. Yeah. Like, I don't think that that's, you, you can't show me that. That's a big shift in tone. Right. You can't show me that and then show me those two kids on a, on a, you know, planet in the middle of nowhere. And your feeling like, is ah, everything, everything is worked fun. out for the best. <laughs> 
you know, and and it, it, that's more of a, a personal note, I think, more personal taste. But it's it's a big tone shift, big swing, and and this movie has a couple of those that don't necessarily work. Um, all right, well let's let's kind of shift into the the end game here and and talk a bit about uh, our recommendations and our our failure score. One thing. So, what is one thing that would have fixed knowing? Right, something that would have taken it from a minor hit, a relatively okay hit that wasn't very critically accepted, into something perhaps a bit more universally lauded. I um, I think, and this isn't necessarily for me, but for it to be more commercially successful, it should have taken a few more pages from the Book of Signs, and just gone there if it wanted to do, uh, faith versus science and, uh intelligent design i guess if someone wants to make a movie about that just do it just talk about aliens talk about faith talk about science go ahead um i feel like the movie didn't quite rip the band-aid off and just say all the things that it wanted to and i understand you know there's there's an inclination especially with alex proyas to talk about ideas rather than coming down on a specific idea or a specific thought. Mm. But I do wish the movie had been a little bit more... I wish it had owned that identity a little bit more. I think that would have improved it. Um, so I would have rewritten the script, and I would have either made those elements stronger, or I would have taken them out in order to build a more coherent story. Yeah, I th I think Proyas was drawn to the film for those thematic elements. I think that's why he was interested in making it in the first place. But over the course of actually producing the film, I think a lot of those ideas just got sidelined by other more pressing narrative concerns. Um, so I, I completely agree. I, th I think the film needed clearer and probably broader themes. Right? These are that's a very specific set of themes to build a film around um, that I think is going to be satisfying to a, to a group of people, right? Like your, your Roger Eberts are going to find that exhilarating because it's, it's dealing with a fairly complicated idea. Um, my issue is, is because it's a complicated idea, it needs more nuance in order to explore it effectively, right? We really needed like, and you can see the pieces of it in the script, right? Like cage is your skeptic. Burn should have been your believer or, or another character like, you know, Rose Burns character would have been the most obvious one to, to have a belief that's maybe been shaken by, you know, her mother. Cause she has that line where she says, you know, this is the, you know, my mother told me I was going to die on that day. Like, whoa. Like, and that just gets breezed over. Like yeah. nobody even mentions it. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. So your mom told you when you were like five that you were going to die when you were 36 on this day. And, and you're just kind of okay with that. Well, what if she had radically built a belief system around that or, or had adopted a belief system because she had been told that and she wanted to believe that that couldn't be true. And so then she clashes with Nicolas Cage, who's like, no, there's no way that that could be possible. That's ridiculous. There and was then a maybe, lot of space for character drama that didn't happen. Right. Because it also had to be a mid-budgeted disaster movie. And it had to have those big moments, which I think are good, but they should have been shifted around. And so that 
that's kind of my one thing, which, which tailors right into that. And I've kind of already mentioned it, that I think this movie needed a sort of full restructuring. The first act of this film is, as it stands uh, is basically wasted time. Yeah. It's, it's character development time, which is not a waste. But the character development is not particularly good. And it doesn't pertain to most of what the rest of the film is about. I mean, and, and frankly, a lot of it could have been handled in much shorter scenes or scenes that were combined. Yeah. Um, you know, the I would have rather seen it go like this. The movie opens with Nicolas Cage on the phone in his truck on the highway. He's talking to Ben Mendelsohn. Ben Mendelsohn's character says, hey, Nick Cage, I know you're I know you're feeling down. I know you're on your way to get your kid. But, you know, your wife's death was, was a year ago, man. I, I really feel for you. I feel like you're, you're struggling at work. Maybe that's what it is. It's a performance review, right? I see you're struggling at work. Um, you know, I, I want to help. You know, I've got somebody. They want to meet you. They, they saw one of your lectures online, whatever. And then that gets interrupted playing. Instead of him being outside of the car, plane passes in front of the car right like nearly hits him Mm -hmm. then he hops out follows it helps people gets pulled out of the wreckage you know while he's trying to help save people and and you know then introduce son ben mendelson's gone and gotten him from school because he heard what happened when on the phone you know he says oh my god it's a plane crashing whatever ben mendelson grabs the son brings him to the hospital get to meet him you know, talk about the son's hearing aid because it fell out or he left it at school. You know, like all of these things, we can establish all of this stuff very, very, very quickly in the midst of an action sequence Yeah, that's going to serve your disaster story. Then the boy says, Daddy, we, ha-, you know, we opened a time capsule and you can still have the scene of the little girl over the credits, you know, sure. getting the time capsule. You can still do all of that. And then, you know, daddy, they opened a time capsule at school today and, and, you know, here's what I get out. Cause the whole thing of them like opening that and then having parents, I, again, in an American school, it would never happen. No one would do it. It's just, it's a waste of time. Um, but whatever. So like, you know, the kid just brings it home and says like, daddy, we opened these today and here's the message I got. And then, you know, same sequence of events, but now instead of him sitting there just being a despondent dad with a dead wife drinking he's drinking because he had this terrible thing happen to him yeah and he's wrestling with it he sets the drink down on it and instead of it being 9-11 it's that day right he sees the numbers for that day and he pieces it together then he works back he finds 9-11 he finds the other things like and then the movie can sort of kick off basically as it did but then you have more time to do other things Right, because now we're we're twelve minutes into the movie, we're fourteen minutes into the movie instead of forty minutes into the movie. Yeah. Right, and so now we have all this time where we can have the characters wrestling with ideas, and you know, we can space out the disaster a little bit more because the major disasters all happen in the last hour of the movie, or or less, <laughs> really. <true. laughs> you know, and we could maybe have another one or a smaller scale one. Right? Maybe he's still struggling with maybe I can change something. Maybe he does feel like he changes something, but it doesn't work. You know, like we've got to see him wrestling with the 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 man of faith, man of science thing longer, and then making a decision, a clear, obvious, this is what I'm going to believe. 
And, and we just never really get there. And it's mostly just time. So that would be my major thing is to actually resequence the first act of the film, even really keep the same scenes, same beats, same characters, tweak the timing of it and try and sh either shorten the entire runtime or carve another 15 minutes out of the middle and turn that into really good character building moments between your core cast. I mean, don't bring Rose Byrne in. 40 minutes into the movie, bring her in at 20 um, and let us start seeing her or even cut to her and, and let us see her life and then how she runs in with him. Right. Um, you know, it, it, there's just a lot of things there that I think could, could help structure that up. But I really think opening with the plane crash as, as the first major event really would just fix a lot of issues and provide more ground for Nicolas Cage to then, you know, jump off and go go places with his character. So that's me. But um, despite that, though, what do you think? Is, is knowing worth a visit? I mean, knowing where we are in the, the career of Nicolas Cage, knowing where we are in the career of Alex Proyas, and, and that this movie, while not reviled by any stretch, is... is basically forgotten like i never see people talking about this movie um you know maybe if it comes up on cable but it it doesn't really pop up in the consciousness do you recommend it do you think somebody should go find it watch it on imdb tv <clears throat> since it's on imdb tv yes you should watch it <clears throat> um i don't know there's like four commercial breaks that's a lot to ask uh, again this is one of those times where I feel like it's it's going to be up to your personal interests I can't recommend this as like a fun and good movie to watch it's not a fun movie it's too heavy to be fun um, and the disaster stuff is not like woo awesome it wasn't like 2012 <laughs> I honestly had a good time watching 2012 it was a terrible movie but I'm like hey it's right. Roland Emmerich you know things are blowing up everywhere it's like Geostorm the core yeah. You know, yeah, like those are bad. Stupid okay. and fun, and I, I'm having a good time. I don't have a good time when I'm watching Knowing, and that's just no. because of the nature of of the film, the the nature of its its message. I suppose if a film can be said to have messages, um, yeah. So I don't know that I recommend it as anything more than a really visually interesting film. I think yeah. you see the same director that Alex Proyas was in Dark City in knowing in the just the way the film looks. So if you want to see more of that, then absolutely you should watch this movie. But if you yeah. want to see a movie that is a good character piece, a good action film, I can't really say that it's good in any one of the genres that it wants to be a part of. Yeah. It it struggles to, I think your point about the the fun disaster movie is is probably the key one, because like in a in a modern disaster film, you know your San Andreas, your twenty twelve, um, you know pretty much anything a Roland Emmerich's ever made, you know that everybody's gonna, for the most part, be okay, right? It'll, there'll be losses, but good guys will win, world won't be destroyed, or if it is destroyed, it'll be fine. This one doesn't give you that. Like this one is is quite legitimately wanting to be like, well, you know, the wind of the world is coming, 
There's literally nothing you can do. So what do you think about that? And that's not a fun place to be. No. Right? It's not a good place to put your head, especially in 2020. Um, but it it wrestles with things in some interesting ways. It's got a very solid performance by Nick Cage, much more tempered down, much more sort of closer to what Nicolas Cage could have been as an actor if he'd made some different choices. Um, not that I think he should have, but he certainly could have gone a more traditional Hollywood leading man direction. He, he was poised to, chose not to. And I, I think it's, it is wrestling with some interesting ideas. I mean, ones that, that are worth wrestling if you're ready for it. But it's not a, a Sunday afternoon fun watch, right? It's not like a put it on and see what happens kind of thing. Um, it, it certainly is a film that has some challenging ideas to it. And even though it doesn't necessarily do a good job with them, they're still there. Um, and, and we're forced to confront them. I mean, anytime you watch the hero of your film get roasted alive in the last, you know, last couple minutes, it's a fairly serious procedure. It's pretty bold. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bold choice. You know, you don't go to a movie to watch Nick Cage. Burning your hero alive is not the first thing that, that directors go to. That's not like a go-to move. I mean, he, he certainly experienced an emotional catharsis uh, before it happened. So Shortly before good. he burns alive. <laughs> but, you know, he still burned alive. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting place to take a film like this. And, and I can see why it maybe didn't find mainstream success. But it does certainly have some interesting stuff going on. Definitely more than you would expect in you know, a film of this type. Or at least how it was marketed, which was as a disaster film. So I guess that takes us to our uh, failure piece score. So where would you place this one? Zero to 100. 100 being an absolute so bad it's good. I I feel like I lean on the score too much, but I this is a 60. This passes the class in that it's a competently made film. It's very pretty to look at, mm -hmm. but it delivers none of the things that Alex Proyas movies delivered in the past sure. and no. even though it's an interesting concept that concept is sort of squandered i spend most of the movie thinking i really wish this would have done this a different way um yeah and i can't i can't go much higher than a 60 when i feel like well you did it but you kind of did the bare minimum sure that makes sense um, I think I'll place it a little bit higher. This is about a, like a 78 for me. Um, I, I, and it's probably buoyed by the fact that I just, I really enjoyed my rewatch this week, um, way more than I expected to. Um, cause when you suggested this one, I was kind of like, Oh, you know, yeah, that one was fine. But as I watched it again, I was like, you know, there is, there's a little bit operating under the hood here more than I remember. Um, and I think and, I, I I agree with that. I think I just I'm frustrated by that. Right, because it could have been much more. It could have been much greater. Um, and we've seen Proyas execute better in the past, you know. Um, which, you know, maybe he's just maybe this is just a general frustration with the process and with studio filmmaking. It's it's really hard to know uh, his his next film after this certainly didn't do anything to redeem that, which I, I'd still like to do that one at some point. Cause man, whew, 
Gods of Egypt is a thing. Uh, but I, I appreciate, you know, sort of like the, the Ebert quote, you know, I, I, I think there is some interesting sci-fi ideas here. The problem is that the sci-fi doesn't come until the last 20 minutes of the movie. And if we'd gotten there a bit earlier and been able to explore some of those themes a bit more, I, I think it would be even better. Um, but as it stands, it's it's not a perfect film by any stretch. But I do like it. Like I said, I think 78 is about where I'm at on it. I think it's it's well worth somebody's time. Um, if anything, just for a good Nick Cage performance and, and a pretty decent story. But, but yeah, uh, I would definitely throw this in the recommend pile as well. Especially if you if you do enjoy disaster films and and the the plane crash, the subway sequence, and then the, the sort of final sequences are they truly are stunning. Like they're incredibly well done, especially given the budget that this movie had, which was was not much at the time. Uh, they they really did it. The the single shot plane sequence is, is certainly worth finding. Even if you just watch that clip on YouTube, it's it's pretty solid. But all right, well we've we've reached the road. We've reached. We finally know where we're headed uh, with knowing. We have which some is, knowledge. Is always good. We've got some knowledge. We've gained a, a bit along the way. Uh, but I guess we'll close this episode out and uh, say thanks for listening once again. Uh, where can you be found on social media, Catherine? I can be found at Baskinator on Twitter. That's the best place to reach me. Very nice. Uh, I can be found at TBaskin on Twitter as well. Uh, you can also get us at uh, the Failure Peace Theater Twitter at Theater, And you can contact us at gmail at failurepeace at gmail.com. Well... We've decided that uh, despite its problems, we love knowing, and we definitely love you. Thanks for listening, and remember, you can't be a failure if you're loved. So, sit tight, have a great week, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.